You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. Here we go. I have a bad feeling about this. Follow me, boys! You're not shinies anymore. Go, go, go! And welcome back to another episode of The Clone Wars Strikes Back. This is the podcast where we go back and celebrate the six-year history of the hit animated series, and we should say Emmy Award-winning animated series, Star Wars The Clone Wars, by discussing each and every episode and episode arc. My name is Dominic, and joining me, as always, is my good friend, Kieran. Hello, Dominic. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm so excited to talk about this arc. We're going to be talking about the Citadel trilogy from Season 3. It's a, it's a great arc, lots of interesting stuff with Anakin and Obi-Wan and the introduction of one Wilhuff Tarkin. You know, this this was kind of like a, a big kickoff for Tarkin. You know, we he had been that character in Episode 4 that we were always a little bit interested in, but nobody ever really talked about. And this kind of kicked off, you know, the discussion about Tarkin. You know, we have that new novel that uh, just came out uh, as of time of recording, like a week ago. Um, you and I are both uh, uh, powering through it. It's a great read. Highly recommend it for everyone. Um, but before we jump into these episodes, uh, we actually sat down with the voice actor who plays Tarkin and many, many other characters on the series, including Colonel Mieber Gascon, uh, Moralo Ival, Masa Meda, and, and so many more, uh, Mr. Steven Stanton. So let's, uh, let's take a listen to that interview right now. All right, so we are super excited to be joined by one of the stars of Star Wars, The Clone Wars. Uh, you know him as the voice of Captain, or, or should I say, um, Admiral Tarkin. Uh, he was also the voice of Colonel Mieber Gascon, um, Moralo Ival, Masameda, and so many other characters on the show. Uh, we are so excited to be joined by Mr. Stephen Stanton. Stephen, welcome to The Clone Wars Strikes Back. Hey, guys. It's, it's uh, great to be here. Nice to be on the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you for, for, for joining us. Uh, we're going to get into some, some stuff about uh, the legacy of the Clone Wars and, and a little bit about the uh, the Citadel arc, um, because that's the arc we're discussing this week in just a moment. But before we do that, just for the people that uh, that are, are, are just uh, getting introduced to you as, as a person for the first time, can you give us a, a, a brief overview of, of how you got involved with the series and, and maybe got the role as Tarkin? Yeah, my uh, involvement with the series goes all the way back to uh, season two with the uh, Duchess of Mandalore and uh, being brought on as the the voice of Masa Meda. That was my very first role on the Clone Wars. And uh, it was actually really something to be kind of dumped into uh, because at that point, uh, you know, I didn't know any the show hadn't been on the air yet. They were still recording, I I think. Uh, If it has, it was only a a few of the episodes had aired. And... um, I was in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of a story arc, so I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know anything about the Mandalorians. I didn't know about Satine. I, you know, I was like, I didn't know where any of these characters came from, if they were from the EU or if they were from the show or, or anything like that. So it was uh, pretty daunting to be uh, put into that situation and just, you know, because they, you know, 
get in there. Dave Filoni comes in and gives his, uh, you know, brief, his uh, prep talk preview to everybody before we start recording, and then we just go into it. So, you know, that part of the arc, you know, there had already been, I think, was, was that like the third or the fourth story in that arc? So yeah. it was tough trying to figure out what in the heck was going on story-wise. So, <laughs> And then, you know, I kept doing other characters for them. Now, Masameda came back a few times, and uh, I did some incidental characters for them. I've done probably close to like 30 characters in total for the Clone Wars. And then the next big one came with uh, Tarkin for the Citadel trilogy. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's funny, you know, to to be kind of brought in in the middle of an arc and and to not really uh, to, to not really know where where you're going. Um, is is that is that more or or less dis- difficult than starting from the beginning, like you would do with with later characters? Well, it's more difficult. I mean, the character of Masameda, he knew what was going on, you know, because he's written into the story wherever he supposedly fits in. But me as an actor, you know, I didn't I didn't see the script in advance. Everything was highly confidential. So, you know, it wasn't uh, wasn't until I got to the uh, to the session that I really had a chance to see what the story was. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Karen. Yeah. uh, Obviously, you've been involved with a number of roles. Most prominently, I think, would be Mr. Admiral Tarkin. And related to this story arc in the Citadel, would you say that this this arc served as the opening of the floodgates for the character of Tarkin? I mean, is there a sense of pride for you to really revive both the character and the the legendary performance of, of course, Peter Cushing? Oh, yes, most definitely. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. The voice comes out. The thing about the Citadel trilogy is it was a, we had just seen the I believe it was the Mortis uh, trilogy that came yeah. right before this one. So here there we got a taste of Darth Vader and some of the theme music that John Williams had uh, composed for the original trilogy. This one really got a huge dose of original trilogy going on it because you start out before Tarkin ever enters into the scene. You've got R2-D2 and C-3PO. You know, you've got uh, the carbon freezing thing going on. You've got mouse droids in there. And then you've got Tarkin. And you know, you've got Wilhelm scream in there during one of the battles. <laughs> this is full of original, original trilogy goodness. It was the first time, I think, really, that the, the prequels and the uh, original trilogy overlapped to that degree. And then it was great, you know, that they had brought Tarkin in and, and made him a captain. So it wasn't, you know, the Grand Moff. It was like, ooh, we get to learn a little bit more about this guy from back when he was just, you know, uh, you know, one of the guys in the military, one of the officers in the uh, Republic Army. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and what was really cool is what we we got to see some some great interaction between yourself and and, and Matt Lanter as Anakin. And uh, you know, we would see that a couple of times in the series where you guys were simultaneously on the same side and opposing sides. And I'm curious if if you guys were given any special direction about those scenes, um, knowing that they were the precursors to such famous scenes in in A New Hope. Yeah, Dave Filoni did talk to Matt Lanter and myself and tried to give us the uh, the building blocks of the the relationship that would you know that they were trying to construct there with those two guys, you know, that they were, you know, Tarkin's kind of pushing and prodding and poking Anakin to see what he can get out of him. And he, the more he, he pushes him and, you know, insults him and does those little digs, the more he's finding out that he's actually, this is a guy that I could probably, you know, I don't want to say work with. It's more like, Oh, this is a guy I could probably control, you know, yeah, (laughs) those things where he's finding, Oh, this is a Jedi that could be of use to me because we kind of established, uh, with that, with Tarkin in this uh, in this uh, trilogy, that 
he's his uh, his uh, ambition is to is is to grab power, to rise in the ranks, and to uh, to seize power. We don't exactly know why, but we know that that's one of his driving motivations. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Um, Garen, absolutely, and uh, I think it is quite good how we're talking about the impact of the Clone Wars on, on characters akin to Tarkin and Anakin. But what would you say, Stephen, is, is the biggest impact that the Clone Wars has made on the Star Wars universe? I mean, would it be, for example, amending views on what you've seen in the Star Wars saga? Or would it actually be even as grand as saying that it had a, an impact on Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm? I think the biggest impact it had just from the standpoint of fans is that it fleshed out the prequels because those stories were so big and done on such a grand scale, even in you know a two-hour movie, you couldn't get in everything that you wanted to say. So I think the Clone Wars acts as kind of a filler or a bridge in the in that whole prequel trilogy to kind of give you an idea of like what is this whole grand story that George Lucas was trying to tell. I think without the Clone Wars, a lot of the prequels it doesn't make sense, or you're left with so many unanswered questions. Uh, I think the, the 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 Clone Wars actually made a lot of this stuff for people that didn't like the prequels. I think they might have made a lot of the characters and a lot of the situations, uh, you know, much more likable and like, oh yeah, this is all part of Star Wars. Oh yeah, totally. It, it it really fleshed out a lot of things, like especially the the more political scenes. You know, you, when you watch certain episodes of the Clone Wars, you sort of get, oh, so that's that's where they were going. That's what they were trying to say in the films, but they they didn't quite get there. And it's the same thing with the, the Anakin and Obi Wan relationship. And the other thing that was great was there's just more time to to do things, like really get inside the the mind of of Tarkin and and to to do other things, like really push the boundaries of, of what we perceived as Star Wars. And, and you were involved. In several of those episodes, specifically the uh, the Gascon uh, quadrilogy with with R two D two and and the clone commandos and the other droids, um, was it noticeably different to record episodes that were sort of more pushing the boundaries? And and why do you think it's important to, to keep pushing those boundaries on what we perceive as Star Wars? Well, because. I think it's especially important in the prequels because the prequels cover ground that we're already familiar with. It's not like the sequels that are going to be coming out now, starting with Episode 7. We have no idea what any of that's going to be about. Exactly. But when the prequels started, we kind of knew what they had to end up going to. They had to end up going to Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. We all knew it had to end at that, you know, they had all had to lead to that. So you're kind of like building a puzzle in reverse. You know, you have like, oh, here's the ending. Now let's create the beginning. So it was very important to kind of, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're doing it all in reverse. So you had to try to fill out all these things that logically, you know, brought you to the point of Darth Vader going after Luke Skywalker and, you know, everything that we knew from the original trilogy. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and would, would you say that was, was different um, or there was a different uh, tone in the recording sessions of, of, you know, some of the more, for lack of a better term, experimental episodes? Yeah, because those things keep the actors excited as well. When, you know, when you're doing something, you know, one of the things that would always happen would we get it, we'd get a, an episode that was like something about, you know, the banking clan or something real <laughs> political drive, a lot of talking. <laughs> You know, Dave, Dave would, Spaloni would come in and say, you know, all right, guys, you know, sit down. It's going to be a lot of talking in this episode, a lot of, you know, exposition explaining. But George likes these because it helps to explain the backstory of everything. When we started doing New Ground, it's very exciting for the actors because you're, you're covering something that you don't have any idea uh, about either. You know, it's, it's, 
it's all new territory. So like the Gascon episodes are doing something, you know, like with Moralo Evolve, new characters that yeah. we hadn't seen before. It was always great to kind of explore new territory and create uh, new lines of thought for the uh, the stories to go down. Because like whatever happened to Moralo Evolve, he got thrown back in jail, but we don't know what happened to him. Where did Gascon go? Is he undercover now working with the rebels or did he, you know, is he retired? Uh, did he get killed somewhere? Um, did he leave the you know the army? We don't we don't know, but those are all great. It's great that we don't know. See, we know what happens to Darth Vader. We know what happens to Obi Wan. We know what happens to Yoda. All these characters, we we know the end of those. The Clone Wars gave us a chance to uh, create some new characters that uh, the endings haven't been defined yet. Yeah, and, and I, you you mentioned that there's so much uh, you know potential now for with all these new stories coming from from the new Lucasfilm to to pick up on some of those characters like you mentioned Morale Evol and I think you just pitched a, a great episode of, of Rebels there. Uh, the, this, you find out that Gascon is is secretly passing on information to the crew of the Ghost. I think that would be a lot of fun. I think I think that might come up in a new episode of Moralo Evolves Bedtimes. Oh. <laughs> Would love that. Would absolutely adore that. I think Colonel Gascon needs to make an appearance there. That would be so cool. <laughs> that would be so cool. Uh Kieran? Absolutely. And you touched upon there, Steve, and a lot of examples of, of the Clone Wars pushing the boundaries in terms of Having having an arc just centered on droids with Colonel Gascon there, and obviously seeing Obi Wan go undercover with Moralo Eval and, and the bounty hunter crew, and I, I think that was that was just an illustration of how far the, the Clone Wars has been able to to push through just the standard Darth Vader episodes there, and and we know that it's it's left a huge legacy on Star Wars, but. Would you also argue it's, it's pushed the boundaries of the animation world as well? I mean, I think a lot of what we've seen in the Clone Wars is really fresh and, and it was very vibrant. And I, I mean, the work of Joel Aaron in particular, I thought was absolutely fantastic. So what would you, what would you say about the, the impact it's had on the animation world? Well, I think it's, you know, it's very much like a lot of things that George Lucas been involved in whether it's you know something like pixar or photoshop coming out of ilm or anything like that he started out on something that he had a vision and you know expanded on it and it sort of like raised the bar for everything else because clone wars you know started out very much kind of like a a kid show and then it got very at times it got very adult and very dark yeah. and uh, very violent, you know, um, you know, to the point where it was becoming like a, uh, a dramatic series that you might see come on, you know, after 9 p.m., you know, <laughs> you know, something that would be like an hour-long sci-fi thing. So it really, it, uh, it broke a lot of boundaries as far as animation goes and what you could do and what people might expect because I think that was what a lot of people were, had, you know, doubts about when Star Wars Rebels premiered. They thought it was going to be... You know, they used the word Disney-fied, which, you know, that could be interpreted a lot of ways. But I think what they thought was it would be kind of like sweet and kid-centric. And what we've seen now is that it's nothing like that at all. There's been plenty of people have met their demise on that show in the few episodes that we've seen. And what we've also seen is it harkens back to the real swashbuckling Saturday morning serial type of uh, feeling that the original Star Wars had, which wasn't that dark. You know, there were some dark moments in it, like, you know... Uh, you know, there were people that met their deaths there, like, you know, Luke's aunt and uncle and, you know, the people of the planet of Alderaan. But for the most part, you know, it was kind of like, you know, it was more cartoon violence. You know, we saw how lousy the stormtroopers were with their with their blasters. First time I saw it as a kid, I wasn't even sure those were lasers because they weren't hitting it. <laughs> 
That's yeah. a fair point to make. <laughs> it's, you've heard of target practice. This is the opposite. This is dodging practice. Um, yeah, you know, when C-3PO and R2-D2 are walking through the corridor on the ship after the stormtroopers have boarded, I mean, there's not a single bolt of laser. It hits them. It's all going around them. And I, was, I wasn't really sure if what I was watching was gunfire or not. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you can dodge a laser. You can dodge a ball. Um, uh, Stephen, you, you've been so incredibly involved in the fan community. I mean, I, I know having been part of the, the Star Wars Underworld going back to you know when, when you first showed up on the series, or, or I guess when, when Tarkin first showed up on the series, I think that's when you really started to get, get involved. And you've been so wonderful to all the fans um, for the entire run of, of the show. And so first off, I'm Thank you for doing that. Uh, it's it was it's absolutely incredible that you you opened yourself up to the fan community like that, um, and it's really wonderful. But we have to ask: Do you have any favorite memories of, of fan interaction? Oh boy, that's a could be a long list. I mean, everything <laughs> from meeting uh, one of my oldest fans at uh, Rancho Cucamonga Star Wars Day, a woman who went by the name of Mama Chen. She was over eighty years old. She didn't speak English, but her daughter was there and. Uh, she, uh, she translated for me and had me sign a picture for her and I had my picture taken with her and, you know, everything from some of the, uh, the, uh, the kids that we've met at, uh, like at celebration, um, you know, with, with, pardon me. Yeah. Through make a wish foundation and things like that, you know, and kids that, uh, you know, don't have it as easy as the rest of us or may have disabilities or terminally ill, you know, it's been, it's been wonderfully fulfilling to meet those fans and to be able to put a smile on their face and uh nothing beats that more than anything else yeah yeah it's 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 truly wonderful and you mentioned you know your your oldest fan this just shows how the uh the universal uh appeal of star wars and how you know somebody who's 80 can love it somebody who's eight can love it and older and younger as well it's it's truly truly wonderful and i i do have to ask and you mentioned i saw you posted on uh on social media recently that you're retiring your, your famous Tarkin costume that you wore at celebration six. Um, what was behind that decision and, and how much do you want for it? If, if I wanted to buy it, <laughs> well, it's priceless. I don't yeah. think it's a Tarkin uniform. Can we? Um, no, I think, you know, it's definitely, it was fun to do. It, uh, it served its purpose. Uh, we got a chance to be on the red carpet during, during the premiere of season five at uh, C six. Um, it was just a fun thing to do that was kind of spurred by Dave Filoni egging me on during the uh, whole season, <laughs> saying, you know, you kind of look like Tarkin, you need to get an Imperial uniform. And, you know, I kept saying this over and over again. And I'm like, what am I going to do with an Imperial officer's uniform? <laughs> so finally, uh, you know, talked to Dutch and Kathy about it, my managers, and they said, you know what, we're going to surprise everybody and do that for C6. And, you know, and it led to the whole thing of me shaving my head and getting a mold <laughs> made and having a professional wig uh, by one of the top wig makers here in in Hollywood. She does, uh, she did won awards for doing the retro style wigs for Mad Men, that wow. series. So wow. we gave her all uh, pictures of Peter Cushing from the 1950s, you know, to, to do the younger Tarkin. And she based it all on that. And, uh, and then we had uh, a tailor go in and make the suit uh, to fit me. You know, it was based on original patterns of the, uh, of the Imperial officers uniforms. And, uh, so yeah, a lot of, uh, of attention to detail and hard work went into that, but it's not something that I, you know, I don't, I don't wear it any, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
these <laughs> sessions about going up one more session to, uh wearing it but uh never did because uh, it was just too too much of an ordeal because you gotta you know i have to shave my head in order to <laughs> do the wig. you have to hire a makeup person to come in and adhere it to my head because it has this fine mesh that's on there and it wow. has to be placed you know otherwise you know i just look like you will brenner <laughs> it would have been fun Corey Burton would have dressed up as Christopher Lee, oh, and then, then I would have been a reason to do that. Because, you know, he and I, we did Dooku and Tarkin together in the Citadel, but we never had a scene together, even though we sat right next to each oh, other in the studio. That, that's but, such uh, a nice kind of, touch. That's, that's a yeah, nice touch, kind of, putting you guys together like that. Yeah, we lamented that we never actually had a scene together to do, so we could have had, the, you know, a, a reunion of uh, Lee and Cushing in the, in the Star Wars, uh, Clone Wars, but... It wasn't meant to be, apparently. It wasn't meant to be. Well, I, I hear that the uh, that that there is such a scene in that the new Tarkin novel that just came out. And by the way, um, fantastic job doing that uh, that excerpt uh, that was released on on Nerdist dot com uh, earlier this week that that you recorded and, and I guess uh, Jimmy Mack produced. It was it was really it was really quite good. Um, though I will say I think they missed a slight opportunity because earlier in the novel there's a scene between Tarkin and Massimeda. I feel like there would have been a <laughs> that would have been a perfect scene, but uh, may not yeah. have been may not have been the ideal one for uh, for an excerpt. <laughs> well, that's the excerpt that we were given, and that's the one uh, I recorded with. We recorded it all down here in Los Angeles in my studio, and and, uh, and we didn't surprise Jimmy Mac because he had no idea. He thought maybe that I was going to just do it all on my own and read it like you know a regular audio book. But uh, we surprised him and brought in uh, Michael Gregory, who was actually in a season, who's part of the Star Wars Old Republic game and did a season six episode of Clone Wars that has not yet aired. Ah. <laughs> yeah, he was the he was the narrator. And oh, uh, cool. Scott yeah. Allen, who's uh, head of the SoCal 501st, uh, played the young uh, played the young uh, Enston. And uh, he's a classically trained actor out of New York originally. And uh, Miss Kathy played the uh, the chief, uh, the female chief officer that was there. So it was fun. It was it was more fun to do it as a radio play than to just do a straight reading of an audio book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just hearing you talk about that and talking about the, uh, the, the Tarkin uniform, one thing that, that definitely comes across about you is, is that when you decide you're going to do something, you do it big. I mean, it's, it's go big or go home home with Stephen Stanton, it sounds like here. It's, it's fantastic. Well, you know, when you're in the entertainment industry, as long as I have been and everybody else that I'm working with, you just do things, you do it right or you just yeah. don't at all because you want it to, to be believable, you know. Oh, totally, uh, totally. Uh, I think that's where that absolutely. Comes from. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And yeah, I've been eagerly listening there about the, the Targeting costume, and I can't wait to auction it myself. I'm, I've got money in a bank account that I'm going to save up for that, and I'll also pay for the haircut to shave my head. I look forward to that. There you go. Uh, <laughs> you got to get that, get that widow's peak just right, though. That's part of the – because even, believe it or not, Peter Cushing was wearing a hairpiece back in those days as well. Really? Uh, that's why his hair look, – look at his all his Hammer films. His hair is different in each and every one of them. And he talks about it in his autobiography. I think the, one of the last films he did – I can't remember which of the Frankenstein of – one of the last Frankenstein movies he did where he said they gave him a wig there. He looked like Helen Hayes. He just thought it was dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. I mean, even if I don't shave my head, I think I've got the sideburns, so I can do Agent Callus instead. So I'll, I'll, I'll stick with that one, maybe. That's, hey, it's not all bad. Yes, Agent Callus has those mutton chops that are in the same shape of his helmet uh, armor. 
<laughs> I love, I love how it's been tied out of the helm. Yes, exactly. It was, that was very, very cool. Very cool. And, Stephen, in relation to... We'll go back to the Clone Wars now. And, of course, as we said, you've had a myriad of roles. But do you have any standout memories from recording the Clone Wars? Um, you know, it's really interesting. There's, There's... You know, some of the, we had a lot of fun doing it, but we all took it very seriously while we were there. I mean, there would be a, uh, me and D. Bradley Baker, I think, all had a really good time doing uh, the, uh, the, what do you call it, the Gascon arc, because the cast was so limited on that. It was myself, Ben Diskin, and D. Bradley Baker, you know, doing McGregor and the, uh, oh, the crazy scientist, Dr. What's his name? Oh, uh, Nuvo Vindi? The, no, no, not Vindi. It's the other Dr. one. I want to say Dr. Gubacher or yeah, something so, like something that. Like that. <laughs> he said that extracts the, you know, the, the, the innards out of the B5, the droid or whatever that Gascon oh, yeah. is going to eat headquarters. <laughs> but it was really great to have such a small, intimate cast like that, especially when he, we were doing the Gregor episode, which turned out to be the 100th episode that aired of the Clone Wars. That was the, uh, the anniversary 100th uh, episode. Uh, it was a lot of fun to do that because we really just got to play each other – Play off of each other uh, in a way that you don't get to when you have just very short scenes, and uh, and it was uh, it was a different kind of clone. He didn't know he was a clone, so it was a very different personality than Fives or Rex, you know, or any of those guys uh, you know that we had met up until that point. It was a uh, you know, and George Lucas said that that was his favorite arc out of the entire series. He because oh, he loves R two so much, <laughs> and he wanted to him this was an R two D two episode. Uh, you know, and because uh, R2 really took charge of a lot of the things that was going on. Gascon was, you know, he was doubting himself, he, a lot of bravado and blustering and so on. But, you know, he didn't really have the skills. It was his first time he'd been a, a map reader. Uh, we had always I had always said that there were a lot of parallels between that arc and the film Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, you had, you know, them going to Abafar instead of Aqaba, you know, and he was a map reader just like, uh, uh, you know, Lawrence was. And, uh, you know, just going out into battle and, you know, he had the the the, uh, the void, the desert sort of uh, place where, you know, people were getting lost out there and, you know, going crazy. And, you know, there was just a lot of parallels out that, you know, just kind of the devil's anvil kind of thing. That whole thing where they're crossing the, that flat, hot piece of desert where, you know, people are falling off their camels and dying left and right to get to their objective. You know, there's just there a lot of things in there that, to me, I just saw parallels. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, Stephen, I, I have to ask you, I mean, you're involved in, in some films uh, um, right now that are in contention for some, some serious awards, and which just goes to show um, the level of talent that was involved in this series. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, those films? Um, so the, one of the films that we're, you're talking about here, and it just opened up in the UK, is uh, Life Itself which is the documentary by Steve James about the life of film critic Roger Ebert. And in that documentary, I narrate passages of uh, the, uh, the autobiography, the, the book that it's based on, written by Roger Ebert. I do them in his voice. Uh, and it's, uh, it's getting a lot of Oscar buzz right now. It's won already a number of awards, of awards already. And um, it's, it's just a great film. If you're a fan of... Uh, film and if you're a fan of Roger Ebert or more specifically sneak previews the television uh, show he did with his partner Gene Siskel 
Um, it's really an incredible film to watch. Not an easy film to watch. It's very uh, heartfelt. There's some very sad moments in there, but there's also a lot of laughs in there too. It's it's great. And then the uh, the other film uh, is uh, Unbroken, which comes out on Christmas Day, uh, oh. directed by Angelina Jolie. And um, I got a oh, chance oh. to uh, to uh, lend my voice to a very uh, pivotal scene that happens during the. Uh, uh, the Berlin Olympics during the 1930s, and uh, it's about the uh, uh, about Louis Zamperini and him being an Olympic star and his uh, you know his trials and tribulations in the Second World War and being captured and taken prisoner and very incredible film and it's uh, it's getting a lot of talk right now too. I think it's going to do very well. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if you can, guys, absolutely check out Life Itself. And I can't believe I'm blanking on the other one. What was this second one called? Un- unbroken about unbroken. Louis Zamperini, who just recently passed away. Oh. He knew, you know, he was, uh, how old was he, Dutch? He was 97 years wow. old. So he didn't get to see the film released, but he definitely was there during the making of it. Oh, and excellent. A great picture online. I think if you go to the IMDb that shows a picture of him and Angelina Jolie, she has her head resting on his shoulder. It's oh, that's very- wonderful. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, so life itself and unbroken, uh, guys, go check those out. Uh, they're phenomenal. They sound phenomenal. Um, Stephen, we want to be respectful of your time, so we only have one last question that we're almost certain you can't answer, but we have to ask anyways. Um, when will you be appearing on Star Wars Rebels? I don't know. What have you heard? Yeah, I, I see. I, I haven't. I, have, I haven't heard anything yet. I'm. I'm, I'm waiting. This is why I have oh. to ask you. <laughs> Let me know when you hear something. Oh, I... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, well, thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Ask you something. Wait, before we wrap oh, up. Sure. So, what do you guys think of Star Wars Rebels up to this point? You know, I'd like to hear your views on it. Oh well, I, I'm absolutely adoring it. I think it's been been really great so far. I think they've they've captured some really great characters. They're all really fun. They're all and they're all deep too. I mean, um, you get a sense of that they're all they've all been affected by the Empire and in some profound way and that's why they're they're fighting and you know the, you know people like you said people were worried it might be kidified or disneyfied and, and you get into that second episode um with with agent callus and zeb and you see right away there's there's nothing kiddy about about what they're talking about in that in that episode i mean they're talking about a full-on genocide and 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 it is, you know, it's the kind of thing we always wondered if the Empire would do. And now we're getting our answers. And it, it's, it's really cool. It's really well directed, really well shot, really well animated. Some great music uh, and great action. I'm absolutely loving it. And, and I think, Kieran, you feel the same way. I, I don't think I could. You're taking the words out of my mouth, basically, Dominic. Because <laughs> I think I can't. I can only echo those thoughts. I think it's an outstanding television show right now. And I, I really cannot wait to see what they have come in, in, in down the pipeline, to be honest. I mean, I've always had that affinity with Clone Wars because I feel like I've, I've grown up with that more, a bit like the prequels. But I, you just can't help being dear to these characters. It is, the, the, you know, the, the, the crew on the ghost ship is like the crew on the Millennium Falcon in the original trilogy. The parallels are so evident there. And, and I, I just think this has the makings of, of being one of the most groundbreaking TV shows, period. I mean, The Clone Wars was certainly up there, in my opinion. But I, I feel like Rebels, particularly learning from it and with the, the similar background uh, cast and crew to The Clone Wars team, they can learn from what they've done in The Clone Wars. And I think they can surpass it. So really, really high expectations. And would, would you agree with that from what you've seen so far, Steve? Absolutely. I mean, I was, you know, I was, uh, I loved the addition of the, uh, 
the Darth Vader uh, prologue that they added to the uh, Spark of Rebellion could set the tone for, like, why is all of this happening? Who's the Inquisitor and what's, why is he out there doing what he's doing? And then uh, just like the Clone Wars, uh, you know, I think the animation and everything has already surpassed what we saw in Season 6. Just as Clone Wars got better progressively as each season went by and they learned more. And they learned how to tell the stories in a way that, you know, people enjoyed more. I think this is I think you're seeing the culmination of all that experience in Rebels, because I think it just, you know, when it first when I first saw it, I thought it really knocked my socks off. So we want to thank Stephen so much for for sitting down with us to to talk about that arc. And as you heard there at the end, a little bit about Rebels. Um, We just want to thank Stephen and and his managers, Dutch and Kathy, so much for for doing that. They are are truly some of the uh, uh, kindest people and most generous with their time. And and, I just want to thank them so much for for doing that interview with us. And uh, you can follow Stephen on Twitter at Stephen underscore Stanton. And uh, like him on Facebook. Just search Stephen Stanton on Facebook. He's always posting interesting stuff there. All right, Kieran, let's jump into these episodes. Do you have episode descriptions for us? I do indeed, Dominic, starting off with The Citadel. With help from R2-D2 and a squad of captured battle droids, an elite team of Jedi and clone troopers led by Obi-Wan and Anakin attempt to free a captive Jedi general, even Peel, from an impenetrable prison. Moving on next to counterattack, with freed prisoners in their possession and the brutal warden attempting desperately to thwart them, Obi-Wan and Anakin search for a way out of the Citadel and back to Coruscant. The prison, however, has more traps, perils and pitfalls in store for them than they had imagined, and they must work past their differences if they are to escape. And the final episode of this arc, Citadel Rescue, After their ship and only way off the planet is destroyed, Anakin and Obi-Wan must lead the escaped prisoners across Lola Seyu's perilous landscape as Plo Koon commands a task force of four cruisers and their fighters through the Separatist defences in a daring rescue. Yeah, these are some great episodes, but they're following up uh, two massive arcs in the Night Sisters trilogy and the Mortis trilogy. Could they have possibly live up to the expectations? Did they? Well, we are going to discuss that. Let's start off by giving our initial impressions of this arc. Uh, Kieran, what are your initial impressions of the Citadel trilogy? The Citadel trilogy is an outstanding arc, in my opinion. And, of course, you cited the the two previous arcs that we've already considered, the Night Sisters, which was a phenomenal arc in itself, and arguably, if not matched, maybe bettered, the Mortis arc, which followed it. And then you have the Citadel arc. As you've as you said, can it live up to expectations? I think it did, actually. I think it was a nice, neat episode. We, we, we touched on a n- number of big themes in the last two arcs, and I thought this was actually quite... A fun arc. There were dark moments in it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> there were some very haunting moments in this arc. Clone Trooper being I, sliced in half, anyone? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that could easily be construed as quite a dark moment, I guess, um, yeah. a, along along with many, many other moments, including one of them getting electrocuted as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and one being shot at 
point point blank range. Yeah. So yeah, not right. not the nicest. Not <laughs> I, good arc I was to be say, the more I think about yeah. it now, <laughs> it's just maybe not the nicest arc at all. But uh, <laughs> I, I I do think that it is a very fun arc there, and and we get to explore the characters of Obi Wan, Anakin, Ahsoka. We get to see their relationship again develop. Um, but on top of that, though, it's a nice action set piece. I think there's there's a number of amazing action sequences. Of course. The, the, the Citadel infiltration, the, the, the mission that took place there, uh, and then moving on to the to the outside of the Citadel and, and, and the fight on the landscapes of Lola Sayu and and and, and, the, and the lava setting and everything around it. I think it was it was just a great action packed arc. And of course, we're going to get on to, to get on to talking about the likes of Tarkin, even Peel. Um, I mean, it was great to see the introduction of that Jedi Master for. You know, obviously we see them in the films, but the first time in the Clone Wars, that's for sure. And yeah. <coughs> spoiler alert, the last time. <laughs> and uh, of course, Tarkin, we, just, we spoke to Stephen Stanton there, and he was a phenomenal voice in Tarkin. And it was just great to see how really, as you've said, this is the foundations for what would later develop into, I think, a greater fascination surrounding the character of Tarkin. And that cannot be exemplified any more than than the fact that there's been this novel released last week, and so far from what I've read, it's it's top dog, top st- stellar work by James Luceno again. Uh, he, he, I mean, I know he doesn't just write about dark side figures, but he, he doesn't do a, 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 a bad job about it, I have to say <laughs> that much, with the likes of Tarkin and Darth Plagueis. But and anyway, over to you. And Sorry? And Darth Vader. He also wrote the and, Darth Vader uh, Rise, of, or Rise of Darth Vader novel from... Uh, from a few years ago, from the the old legends verse, <laughs> I I was I was focusing on the more canon side, as all Dominic. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but no, you know. no, no, don't get me wrong though. I've I have I admit I haven't read the Darth Vader novel. That's but... a good, it's it's a good read. Like that's the thing about legends, right? We always talk about legends. Like it's it's yes, it's not canon, but they're also fun to read, and that's that's a fun one. I, I recommend it to anyone. I think I think James Lucino is a phenomenal author. But sorry, I, I keep cutting you off there. <laughs> That's all right. I've I've come to the end of my initial thoughts anyhow. But all I would say is that you know, James Luceno, fantastic novel writer, and and linking onto this arc particularly with Tarkin, it just goes to show I think that the, the interest and intrigue surrounding his character still remains there even today. And over to you, Dominic. Initial impressions. Oh well, I absolutely loved it. I I thought it was fantastic. I, I really really enjoyed it. I, overall, it's it's a it's a great arc. I remember watching it at the time, and it was kind of it was kind of nice to get back to just some some good old good old fashioned fun actiony kind of stuff that was going on. And there, but there was a lot of weight behind it too. It wasn't just. Uh, you know, it wasn't just fluff. It wasn't just action for the sake of action. There was a lot of cool stuff going on, and and I really appreciated that. And you know, it was kind of, it was a, it was a nice, uh, it was a nice change of pace from the Night Sisters and more stuff that we had, had just been experiencing. But it, we also got to see a lot of good stuff between Anakin and Ahsoka, Anakin and Tarkin. That is really cool to see. Uh, see how Anakin and Tarkin are, are interacting. That was great. Um, just so much good stuff in there. So much good stuff. Well, let's 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 talk about. Excuse me. Let's talk about the Citadel prison in and of itself. I mean that that right there is a, a fascinating concept. It's a prison designed to hold Jedi who have lost their way, 
and yet it is in control. <laughs> it's in the separatist control. You get the sense that this kind of, this thing hasn't been used in a long time. So, so here, I'll just ask you, what what did you think of the the Citadel prison? Yeah, it was it was a very haunting image that I can think of with the Citadel because of obviously the the principle behind it is that it was the to hold and and detain Jedi who had seemingly lost their way and um obviously we we see at the beginning of the of the Citadel arc that uh, even Peel has been apprehended on on route from this republic mission um and you have that I, I just think to myself that massive screen that we see Osi Sobek watching with all the different cameras in the Citadel it just not only does it make it seem just like this massive and, and, and monumentally sized fortress, but in addition to that, it was just the cruelty of the, of the methods that were used because you, you see all of these prisoners hung up, and well, particularly even Peel hung up um, in that uh, electric prison hold, or I, 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 what would you call that implement that, uh, that even Peel was held in? I, I guess it's um, some sort of a, a, a electric... Hold, hold is what I called it myself. But <laughs> either way, um, you know, he was getting tortured by that droid, and it was it was very menacing, actually, wasn't it? The, 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 I think that although it was a a, a simple and, and, and and as you said, quite a fun arc, there were there were quite a lot of dark moments in this. I think actually, oh yeah, one one, Clone, one of them in particular, clones the, getting yeah, sliced the, in half, <laughs> clones getting sliced in half, and then that droid was about to take out even Peel's eye, and it's just oh, yeah. a bit. It was that was very very menacing and very very dark uh but it, it worked really well and yeah the, the whole concept behind it is is very very um, you know menacing and quite quite brutal really when you think about it that that um it, it really portrays the, the separatists in this in this malevolent light and, and i guess that's the image that the, we're supposed to be getting of the separatists as well. If you're yeah. if you're rooting for the republic, and it, I think I think it took it to another level from what we've ever seen before in the Clone Wars, though. And particularly, I would say embodied in an individual or the commander Osi Sobek, who he he is up there. I think with one of the most uh, nefarious villains that we've seen. Uh, he he ends in a similar fate to many of the other villains, <laughs> <laughs> but he is up there with you know cruelty uh, just a tyrannical a tyrannical um uh you know individual so but anyway over to you Dominic. what's what did you make of the whole concept surrounding the citadel yeah i i thought it was really cool and there's a part of me that would love to see stories um set in the citadel long before this long before the clone wars because it's almost like more interesting to me than it just being a separatist prison because you know there we have you know we have the droids holding them holding the jedi captive and they're they're torturing the jedi for information and all of that was that was you know like you said it was disturbing um but and and it was interesting to see and it, it made for a great story but a part of me would like to see just like you know the citadel you know 200 years before that with these like insane Jedi in there, you know, and these Jedi, you know, maybe it would be Jedi like General Krell from the Umbara arc who decided he wanted to go over to the dark side or, or maybe, you know, maybe there's other sort of ways that the Jedi could lose their mind. Maybe, you know, cause you know, the force works in mysterious ways. And if, if a Jedi kind of gets too into like a weird aspect of the force, they could wind up, you know, losing their mind and, and being stuck in this place. It would be very interesting to see, um, you know, that hopefully the creators keep it in mind as they, uh, as they move forward with, with the new stories set before 
uh, Phantom Menace and, and, and stuff. But yeah, it, and seeing it in this, it was, it was, you know, you definitely got a sense that it was not an easy place to escape from. You know, they got thwarted several times right up until that last ditch ep- ditch effort from uh, from from Plo Koon and and Cisse Ten and and uh, and Master Adigalia, and I think Kit Fisto was in there as well. Um, you know, that was sort of there was that last last effort, and you know. They almost didn't make it. That's the thing. It was really, you know, you got the sense that this prison was not something to be messed with. Uh, let's, well, that, that's exactly yeah, the point. Just to, just to interject there about the fact that it seemed so perilous and dangerous was because every turn, yeah, there was some sort of trap or ensnarement. Yeah, exactly. Admiral Akbar would have had a field day. This, he? Every, every corner he turned, and by the time it would be like, pipe down, Akbar. Come on, we know it's a trap. It's a trap. But... It's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> exactly. It, it was a bit like that. Every time they turned a corner, um, there was some sort of ensnarement that uh, O.C. Sobek had ready for the Jedi. And, and I think that had a really uh, effective execution really of of this episode to actually illustrate the fact that this was a jedi holding cell and if it's going to be living up to that title then you have to have traps pretty much around the corner every time and it's got to seem as though that the stakes are not just high but uh also that it is as i said very menacing and very jeopardous for the jedi and i think that actually was executed to, to near perfection i think uh, particularly in the in the later episodes when you, you usually get the impression in these arcs that you think yes the jedi are going to escape they're going to get out but even at the end they only got out by the skin of their teeth i mean it was once oc sobek was gone it wasn't as though that was it you know there were all these crab droids suddenly came out of the lava and it was you know it was literally last ditch stuff so yeah and uh, just to compliment what you were saying, man. yeah, and they didn't all make it out. That's the other thing. I mean, even Peel lost his life on the on the the plains of Lola Seu there. Um, Absolutely, you know, they did, and a whole bunch of their clones went down too. It's uh, this was a uh, like this was a pretty bloody arc. I mean, you consider all of the all of the deaths. It, it, you know, we, we started talking about it, it was like it's, it was really fun arc, and then you start thinking about it, like a lot of characters died, and a lot of characters died in really brutal ways. Um, it, it was it's definitely one of the the darker arcs when you start to think about it. Um, but, but let's talk about the Jedi. Um, you know, Anakin and Obi Wan are going to go on this mission, and Ahsoka obviously wants to come along, and she she sneaks along. Um, but Anakin doesn't want her to come on this mission, and I'm kind of wondering is is this kind of the fallout from what happened on Mortis? Because he's talking about you know this is a dangerous miss- mission, this is a dangerous mission, and like they've been on tons of dangerous missions before. Um, but I wonder if this was kind of a, a bit of a, a fallout from Mortis because I mean she died on Mortis and she was only brought back to life in those extreme circumstances. Um, do you think? It, Anakin's thought process there had something to do with Mortis? Yeah, I'd definitely say so. And I think what was quite surprising about the start of this arc is that there seemed to be immediate repercussions illustrated from a previous arc because usually you you focus on one particular aspect in the Clone Wars, whether it was akin to the Night Sisters, we focused on the Sith, and then the arc before that it was all politics and in the arc after that it was about the force and it doesn't necessarily seem to be this cohesive inter 
interlinkage between episodes. And I think this is one of the first times because it was so rare, I think, that I, I stood back. Actually, I think he's referencing the, the Mortis arc there, that there's actually um, a fallout as a result of what happened in Mortis. It's a shame that there wasn't a little bit more, to be honest, mm-hmm. because I think that it was so groundbreaking an arc that it did need to be focused upon and concentrated on a little bit more in terms of the implications. It was all left a bit too ambiguous, in my opinion. But I, I, I generally think that he, he is being overprotective as a result of Ahsoka's death. And we've obviously seen in the past that he finds it difficult to sever the ties of attachment between people that he cares about, mm-hmm. uh, particularly his mother, obviously. And obviously seeing his mother die, that's, we saw the implications of that. And now he's seen Ahsoka die, but obviously she's come back to life. It's uh, it's probably at the forefront of his mind now. And he, he's thinking to himself, I don't want to endanger my Padawan anymore. So you're not going to be a part of this mission. I yeah. mean, whether we agree with whether he should be saying that is another matter. But I, that, that that's his thought process in my book. That He, he just has an attachment that he, well, we know that he... He finds it difficult to actually separate himself and distance himself from from people that he really cares about, and and it's something that Obi, uh, not Obi Wan, sorry, Yoda uh, talks to Anakin about in Episode Three. He says, you know, you know, t- test yourself, meditate to let go of everything that you fear to lose, and it's something that Anakin doesn't learn. We know that much, um, and clearly prior to that, it's something that he's struggling to deal with. But yeah, what well, what are your thoughts about that scene? Because I thought it was a very interesting scene. No? It was it was something that hadn't really been touched upon, I think, before. Yeah, yeah, it was it was one of those things where, you know, you kind of, you know, you understand where Anakin's coming from. And I, and I totally agree. I definitely think it was a result of Mortis that he didn't want her to, to to come on this mission. I mean, you watch someone die and then come back to life right in front of you. You, you might not be, be too keen to, to throw that person into danger again. You might think, I'd like to spend a little bit more time with this person alive before, you know, we go out and risk our lives uh, again. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and and it, it, it made sense. Um, and, of course, Anakin's attachment issues. But, you know, you wonder that, you know, if, maybe it just was too dangerous a mission for a Padawan. I mean – even Peel, a Jedi master on the council, was killed, and and Ahsoka. She's she's not even a full Jedi yet. I I wouldn't be sending sending you know Jedi Padawans on, on this mission either. I don't think you know if, I don't think Qui Gon would have taken Obi Wan with him. I don't think Obi Wan would have taken Anakin with him. You know when they were you know master and apprentice, and and you know I I think that they were they were thinking. You know, I think they were in the right space. You know, Obi Wan and and the other Jedi to to not uh, to not take Ahsoka along. Uh, Anakin maybe not so much. Anakin might have been thinking directly about Mortis, but uh, but definitely Obi Wan. I, I don't think Obi Wan was too keen on her coming either. Um, but I I thought it was interesting that you know ah- Ahsoka goes to Plo Koon to try and get help, and she tells uh, Anakin that that Plo Koon said she could go on this mission. And Anakin seems to accept this, um, although he has his doubts about whether that actually happened. But it, it raises the question, I mean, you know, does another Jedi have the authority to give direct orders that um, override the, you know, a Padawan's master? Like if Plo Koon says – if Anakin says to Ahsoka, go left and Plo Koon says go right, who is she supposed to listen to? Is it technically It's an Anakin? interesting one, isn't it? Or particularly is it- – well, Plo Koon, yeah. Good. Well, partic- 
particularly when you consider the fact that Plo Koon was also one of Ahsoka's mentors, it really does put that into doubt, doesn't it? Because you feel like she's probably uh, a little bit unsure of herself, really. It mm. seems as though if she doesn't agree with what Anakin says, she turns to Plo Koon as though he's the next person on the list of uh, Jedi to to go to, because obviously she's had that close relationship, and I think she feels that hopefully Plo Koon can be on her side uh, as, as he was the Jedi that brought her to the temple but yeah that's I mean it's a very interesting scene that one isn't it particularly with um, the fact that she clearly she wants to go on his mission and and it, it seems to me that Plo Koon doesn't actually sanction it but yeah no I, I, I think it's pretty obvious by the end that he doesn't but he, he, he covers it up reasonably well uh, <laughs> he's, he's pretty tactful about it anyway um, I, I, the reason why I, I'm going to say that I think he does have the authority to do it, and and that's because of um, the fact that he's on the council and Anakin is not. And I feel like if if you are on the council, then you do have that you have that higher rank and and superior authority to be able to make these decisions, particularly if you think it's for the well being of the Jedi. And that I, I, it. it it partly it depends as well on how you interpret the the role of the Jedi Council. What what exactly are they allowed to do? What are they permitted to do? What are they prohibited to do? And you, you could easily argue that this this is an intrusion of a, a master and padawan relationship, but mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see it that way. And on top of that, you have to take into account that it seems to be Plo Koon who's organised this whole mission as well. He seems to be the the commanding yeah. general, isn't he? Because he knows that the whole plan. He is the one who was imparting the information to obi-wan anakin and the clones um yeah. and then when something and then he was the one telling yoda and mace windu that there was a change of plan it seemed as though he um plo Koon himself had an integral part he was almost the crux of it he was the head of this assignment and in that respect i think he does have the authorization therefore to actually um authorize something akin to ahsoka going on a mission above anakin but either way, it was it was quite a smart move, I think, for on Ahsoka's part to yeah. uh, to make that story up. Yeah. Uh, but what do you think on it? Do you do you well, have a different take on it at all? It's interesting. I, I I wonder if this is maybe another one of those things where the Jedi are losing their way because this is a, a military operation and it's almost being run like one. You know, Plo Koon is sort of the overseer. He's he gets sort of the final say from the command center, the Jedi Temple, um, and so maybe in the past, you know, in and let you know, masters would respect each other's uh, decisions when it came to Padawans, but in this scenario, because it's a, a military operation, Plo Koon could say, "You know what, Anakin, you're wrong this time. Um, and, uh, take Ahsoka along." And, and this could just be a, a because they have to win the war, and this could be another. This could be almost the Jedi sacrificing one of their beliefs or, or some of their principles in favor of, of winning the war. Granted, it's definitely not the most uh, egregious of the uh, of the things that we've seen the Jedi do. And, and we'll talk more about the Jedi code uh, later on in this episode uh, because of what Tarkin has to say. Uh, but it's interesting. It seemed seemed odd to me, but you know, like you said, Plo Koon is a member of the Jedi Council, and I guess they probably have the authority over all the Jedi. That all the Jedi have to listen to them or face, uh, you know, serious uh, serious problems or serious uh, issues. 
Um, so I guess, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe it would have been different if it had been, you know, Master Tipley who, who told us who Ahsoka went to, you know, who, who doesn't have that authority that Plo Koon has being a member of the, the Jedi Temple. Uh, yeah, maybe it is that distinction, actually. It, it, because Plo Koon had this integral part in the plan, that may well have given him the, the added authority to actually um, basically instruct and, 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 and tell Anakin uh, that he was wrong and, and, and assign Ahsoka on this mission. If it was, as you said, Tin, if it was Adi Galia, I wonder if they necessarily would have been able to get away with it. I wonder what Anakin's response would have been if she had said one of those two Jedi. Right. He might have said, well, that I don't care what they say. Um, they have no authority on this mission. You shouldn't be here. But because it was Plo Koon, he, instead he was like, I don't believe you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> he didn't say that Plo Koon was wrong. He just said that he didn't believe us. Uh, Plo Koon would have endorsed this. So maybe that's, as you said, it's like a military operation. And um, surprisingly, it seems to contradict what Tarkin thinks about the Jedi Order, but it does seem that the, the Jedi order is becoming more of a military machine yeah yeah that's a good point i mean they they do definitely seem to be um becoming more and more military militarized maybe not to the extent tarkin would like um but they they definitely don't seem to be the um benevolent peacekeepers anymore they they seem to be a little bit more intrigued on uh on just getting achieving success in this war and one of the things that that kind of goes to that point and it struck me in this episode is it seems like their mission was to rescue even peel and only even peel and like they weren't worried about the other clone officers or or or, or republic officers or clone troopers because you know when when peel tells them that you know he split up the the information between him and his captain you know, Anakin says something along the lines of we're going to need a new plan. And that kind of struck me. It's like they were just going to leave those guys to be tortured by O.C. Sobek and Count Dooku. It, it seemed very un-Jedi-like to me. I don't know if, 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 you, if you felt the same way about that, but it, 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 it that struck me. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something I heard, but it, it didn't strike me as much until you've highlighted it there. And I, that's actually a very good point there to, to actually um... – make it transparent i guess the fact that the jedi have become more militant in their operations and that's another example there just to to further illustrate that fact and i i guess when you're in a fortress as formidable as as the citadel you must have you have to make um i guess what's the word you, you have to you have to choose priorities don't you you have to prioritize the mission and even peel in the jedi's mind is the one who has the information and that's the one they're going to go for that's that's the way it seems to me. Obviously, when they found out Tarkin had the information, they had to go and get him as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it, it, it's, it's a word that we or a phrase that we hear in today's news um, is collateral damage. And I think that's exactly what the Jedi were were doing on this mission. Really, were actually um, implementing it was it was the fact that they needed to prioritize, get even peel, get the information. And then get him out of there, and unfortunately, there would have to be this collateral damage. But it would be for the for the better um, good of the war, I guess. It would be um, for helping the Republic achieve success in emerging victorious. But another interesting point that I've, I've kind of thought about as I'm speaking now is it, it makes you wonder if if even Peel didn't have this information, would they have gone to save him anyway? 
I, I, I think they would have. I think they, they would have. I think we saw that in in the episode Grievous Intrigue. They went to rescue um, – what's his name? Um, Master Eve Koth. Eve Koth, yeah. I, I, I can't remember his name. I, I could remember the actor who played him. I was like <laughs> Chris Andrew Lee. Uh, uh, Eve Koth, <laughs> Koth, yeah. Um, they went to rescue Eve Koth. So I, I think they would have uh, gone to rescue um, Eve and Peel. Um Eventually, I, I think they may not have gone as quickly. I think they sort of knew this was an important mission, but uh, you know, Grievous sort of realized in that episode that you know, in in Grievous Intrigue that you know he could he could bring the Jedi um, he could he could bring the Jedi into the open by uh, kidnapping one of their own, uh, and so I, I you know or maybe maybe they wouldn't have maybe that the the, the ordeal on Salukamai and. And all of that in the in Grievous Intrigue sort of said to them, hey, wait a minute. Maybe we shouldn't go. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we shouldn't rush into things just to rescue our Jedi Masters. Maybe we should trust them not to break. I mean, even Peel said, you know, it would, no droid would ever break him. And Eeth Koth was willing to die um, at the hands of Grievous. Um, so maybe they sort of maybe maybe they had a bit of a change of heart. And this was only uh, and this mission was only organized because of those. uh those plans. Um, I don't. I don't really think that's the case. That maybe it might be something we, to to think about as we go forward in in, in this series and see if there are any other instances instances of this. Um, but I, I do think that maybe the mission was expedited a little bit and and given a little bit of uh, a, given a higher level of priority and a little bit more, for lack of a better term, oomph behind it because uh, you know there was that information that they needed. Um, and and those were really, I mean, the the hyperspace route, the Nexus route, was was really just kind of a, the MacGuffin for this arc. I mean, it it, mm. it didn't really come into play. It would have been nice to see it come into play later on in the series, but uh, we'll never know uh, what they yeah, had because, planned after season six. <laughs> well, because when I heard about it for the first time, I I don't know if you had a similar reaction, but it, it really raised the stakes in my book, particularly for this arc. I, Thought to myself, wow! If you know the Republic or the Separatists get a hold of this, then the, they will have access to Coruscant. Um, either way, though, I guess when we think about it, it doesn't matter because Chancellor Palpatine obviously is the one orchestrating this war. He's going to get it either way, isn't he? Yeah, yeah um, exactly. The, the only thing that he doesn't want to happen is that even Peel or Tarkin die. I guess more than anything else, uh, because then he won't get that information. It's, it's one of those things that he, now. Well, I don't know exactly how it was resolved because we didn't get to see the the fallout after this. But I'm under the assumption that they managed to get that he managed to get the information and just kind of stick it in his back pocket. And and when the time was right, he sent it along to Count Dooku and said, "Right, here's how to get to Coruscant." Blah blah blah. Um, that that you know, and, and and then that really accelerated the process of the separatists may manage it to get to to Coruscant because we never really saw that. We never saw how the separatists got to Coruscant because surely there must be, <laughs> if there was a, um, I, I guess a mass of activity brewing around um, the the Republic homeworlds, they surely the Jedi and the, and the Republic would have been alert about that. So, yeah, that's. I, I think the MacGuffin was really really effective though. As, as I said, it, I think it really raised the stakes in this arc, and um, it, it did make you. Not only want to see even Peel and Tarkin survive because we quite like those characters, but also because of the fact that there was a bigger mission here at stake, and that was the the Nexus route coordinates. Yeah, 
and you, you mentioned that, you know, the, the, the thing more is at stake and, and Palpatine's going to get it either way. It almost would have been better if even Peel didn't tell Ahsoka because then Palpatine never would have gotten it. And because, you know, Palpatine got it and then he sort of, he probably sat on it for a little while. And then when he was ready to, to have Grievous attack uh, Coruscant, he, he got on the phone, called up Dooku and said, here's, here's how you get here. And, uh, and, and that's how they, they ran the attack. So it almost, you know, it's, it's, again, it's one of those things of, of Palpatine just being the mastermind behind all this. He got the Jedi to bring him this inf- information, you know, they thought it was important, but really they're just going to, he's just going to give it to Dooku later on to, to lead this massive assault on, on the Republic capital. It's, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> well, it's the reason why I think he wanted it as well. Yeah. He didn't want to give it to the Jedi. And Tarkin was insistent that the Chancellor instructed Tarkin to disclose the information only to Palpatine himself and not the Jedi Order. He didn't want them to know about this. And I don't know exactly how the fallout went, but we could readily assume that Chancellor got what he wanted. And I think uh, that that certainly was something that, as as I said, he kept in his back pocket and then he released it when it was necessary. Similar to when he told Anakin that Grievous was on Utapau in episode three, because that suddenly just sprung out of nowhere, didn't it? It was like, oh, I'll clone intelligence units. You know, it was just quite ambiguous about how he got that information. But you just think, as you said, the mastermind at play here, he's got all of this information that he's... He's got within his grasp and he's just imparting that knowledge whenever he sees fit, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that that last scene. Let's jump way ahead because you, you brought it up there. And you mentioned, you know, Tarkin wants to give it to the Chancellor. Ahsoka only wants to give it to the Council. And we, we really see a rift that, that's starting to form between the, uh, the Jedi Council and the chancellor and that sort of starts leading to some distrust and we see that come into play more with uh with the whole ordeal at the end of season five and then of course the yoda arc in season six and of course it all culminates in revenge of the sith with your under arrest chancellor <laughs> um and we really get to see the, that rift beginning here um you know because for the most part it seemed up until this point the jedi and and the chancellor were working together um you know, mostly in peace, most mostly a trusting relationship. Obviously, the Jedi don't completely trust Palpatine, but they don't completely trust any politicians. I mean, Obi Wan says as much in in Episode Two, and and here we sort of start to see this rift, and you almost wonder if that was a if, if Palpatine is again is he being the, the the mastermind behind all this and trying to create tension between the Jedi and him, so that he can sort of point to that for Anakin, or if this is almost a mistake on his part, like you know. Dave Filoni, the supervising director of the series, has talked about, you know, Palpatine is, is not infallible. You know, there were instances in the war, and we kind of saw that with Darth Maul and, and, and the Mandalorians and all this, of, of factions that could have caused a lot of trouble for Palpatine. Um, and his plan could have uh, fallen apart as a result. Um, but instead, of course, it, it all worked out. Um, this does, it, could this have been one of those instances where you know he creates this rift, he creates this rift, and then all of a sudden, you know, you know Mace Windu is is willing to believe that he's a Sith Lord right away, and you know, what if what if you know Mace had of uh, had of succeeded in that fight? What if Kit Fisto, um, Agent Kolar, and was it was it Master Tin who was there as well? What if they, yeah, I yeah, think what, it was. yeah. What if they hadn't have been such useless pawns and gotten stabbed right away? You know, it could have fallen apart. You know that that 
that sequence there in episode three could have been the end of Palpatine uh, and, and the end of the story. <laughs> um, and, and you almost wonder, was, was it a mistake on Palpatine's part to create this rift, to let this rift fester? Should he have perhaps foreseen it and um, avoided it? Um, what do you think? Well, here's a thought. Who's, who's to say that he didn't necessarily foresee it, to be honest? Mm. I mean, I think there was always going to be the friction between the, the Chancellor, the part of the Senate, and uh, and the Jedi as a result of this war. We know that the Jedi themselves are becoming more militant as a result, and isn't that what Palpatine really wanted from this war? Yeah. He wanted them to become uh, more militant and and really um, depart from their, their Jedi principles, the, the Jedi honourable code, um, so they would be able to fall, and also people would be able to believe that they fell down. They weren't not, they weren't these peacekeepers, as you said, the benevolent peacekeepers anymore. Um, and I think that the friction that's evident is not just between the Chancellor and the Jedi, but I would also say the military, uh, the, the the actual officers, the what was will later become the Imperial officers of the Empire, because I see Tarkin as really a personification of the military side. Um, in during the Clone Wars, um, and we obviously see more of that in the in the season five arc finale. How dark that that side really is, and also how I guess uh, secluded it is from from actual Jedi affairs and and actual that Jedi war effort. It seems as though that they have a higher jurisdiction and than the uh, than the clones who are fighting with the Jedi do. And that, I think that's quite interesting in itself because you can see Tarkin's clearly on the Chancellor's side. He doesn't want to give this information away. And you know, I'm sure we know reasons why you know, Tarkin is, is, is on the Chancellor's side, a number of motivations uh, surrounding that, um, which I'm sure will later be disclosed in this Tarkin novel that's been released this past yeah. week. So I think that uh, it's, I think it's a really interesting rift that you have used the term that you've used there, I think, is very apt. Um, there is really this friction, the fragmentation, really starting to starting to burn, I guess, uh, between the, the Jedi and and the Chancellor. Um, but I, I I always think that the, the Chancellor had it covered, and it was too late by that point, as we see in the in the Yoda arc that vision of, of, of what could happen in the future. But I think that's more of, of what will happen in the future more than anything else, that it's too late now. The dark side has prevailed. It's so strong now uh, that there was no way the Jedi were ever going to succeed. And, and that could be a, a way, I guess, of, of retconning what happened to those Jedi Council members in the in the office, that the, the dark side was so consumed in Palpatine that it was just such a brute force of nature, even though these are competent Jedi Masters, they weren't able to surmount to it. They weren't able to challenge it. And ultimately, uh, you know, Mace Windu was one of the fortunate ones. But who's to say that that wasn't even a ploy by Palpatine to lure Anakin to the dark side? So many questions surrounding that fight, which are very interesting. But yeah, to come back to your point there and bridge it really, I guess, yeah, that I think the frictions and the tensions between a Chancellor and the Jedi Council are always going to happen because of how the Jedi were progressing and, and advancing into this military force. But and, also because I think it's, it's what the Chancellor wanted. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, the Chancellor's a Sith Lord, you know. Yeah, <laughs> At the end of the day, it does all come back to that. Uh, you know, he's, he's a Sith Lord. Um, and he, he will, uh, and the, the Jedi and the Sith will always be at war, or, or pretty much always be at war. And, and that that's just kind of the way it is. Um, let's talk about uh, even Peel 
this is a Jedi we, we'd only ever really seen in the background. He, he kind of looked like, um, you know, like a pirate Yoda or something, you know? Um, so what did you think of, of, of Jedi Master Even Peel? I really enjoyed his character, actually. He was one of those maverick Jedi Masters that we rarely see, don't we? The ones where they're a bit more boyish and, uh, and, and, and less as... Um, not restrictive is the right word, as, as as strict on their Jedi codes as the like of as the likes of Obi Wan Kenobi and well maybe not Obi Wan Kenobi but more Mace Windu school of thought if you if you see where I'm coming from there I, I feel like even Peel probably um, is, uses techniques that are a little bit out there and a, a little bit less um, focused on the, the the Jedi Council code I think he would be able to get away from that and you can see that from the opening lines I guess when you know, he says to Anakin and Obi-Wan, what took you so long? Rather than the Eve cough, thank you so much for saving me. It was just like, come on, guys, I, I've been waiting here. How, how, how long have you been taking to get here? Come on, we need to move it now. So, you know, yeah. he, he's kind of got that, that uh, I guess, aggressive attitude, I guess, more than anything else. But he, he, he was quite a fun Jedi, I have to say. It was quite sad to see him go. But obviously we know that uh, there was a lot of controversy to say the least surrounding even peels death yeah uh, and then the great thing is we don't have to talk about it because the no. books are legends so this is his definitive death there is no question about it they put him in that blanket and threw him over the the lava waterfall so he's dead 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 <laughs> and here's my here's my little minute rant i think i'll have to say about that whole controversy i just you know, I, I, we understand that what we've read in the eu books is is, is of interest to people and you know it's it's part of the fan fiction of, of star wars and i know some people will take that as canon but we now know it's not canon mm-hmm. uh, but just you know to say that you know, I heard some of the quotes as though, like, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, they can't be doing this. This is not what was said in this novel and, and, and X novel and y, in y novel. And you're just thinking to yourself, it, you know, if it really irks you that much, then you don't, you don't have to watch it, for goodness sake, more than yeah. anything else. But also, it's all fiction anyway. I mean, for goodness sake, you don't need to get so worked up about something like that, in my opinion. Um, I, I just think the controversy surrounding it was really blown out of proportion to be honest um i mean it wasn't as though it was contradicting the films was it i mean there was nothing like that then you can have some legitimate claims to say well hang on a minute but wasn't he in episode three he wasn't in episode three so why is there all of this commotion about it i didn't i didn't really get it but then i am not the most staunchest advocate of the eu books any or the legends books anyway but i i I just think that it was it was something out of nothing to be honest and I actually think that it worked extremely well in this story. It added a lot more to it because, as as you alluded to earlier, it really demonstrated the fact that this was a, a potent, formidable fortress and that not many Jedi would escape if any Jedi would. Um, and you've got to have the, the stakes raised on that bar, really, haven't you? You've got to illustrate the fact that uh, and, and illuminate the fact that this is a Jedi prison planets really um you know it's, it's not just a pri- once they get out of the citadel prison it's not as if well who we just need to get a ship and get out of it everywhere they <laughs> turned there was perils yeah exactly uh, you know it had those anubas and you had the crab droids and things like that and 
yeah, I think it was very believable and and it was very impactful. Um, and that's the end of my little rant about the EU thing. So we, as you have said correctly, we do not need to talk about that anymore because yeah. um, there is no contradiction. It's all non-canon and this is canon. So yeah. there we go. That's my little rant over for the yeah. episode. <laughs> and I, I think um, something out of nothing, that should be the um, the, the motto for these EU, <laughs> save the EU groups, <laughs> not, <laughs> not give us legends. It's something out of nothing. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure after this, all the EU fans that listen here will not be happy with me. No. <laughs> I'll look forward to those messages in, in, good, in good time. Good <laughs> time, yeah. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, the great thing about dubbing those stories as legends, it means that they're legends in the Star Wars universe. And so, you know, maybe during the time of the during the dark times between episodes three and four, you know, there was a, a rumor or, or a legend that – uh that uh, even Peel survived and he was off training a, a Jedi apprentice to do all these things that happened in those books. Um, but as we've learned about rumors, those of us that have been following the production of, of Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, um, a lot of rumors turn out not to be true. I mean, that's the thing. Um, you know, th- th- there can be whispers about these kind of things. Um, but, you know, by and so by by calling the books legends, it, it means that there's still some value to them. There's still and, and here's the thing. There's value to them in general because they're great entertainment. And, you know, if you enjoy Star Wars and you want to read Star Wars books, that's hey, enjoy them. Enjoy them. They're they're good fun. Um but uh, it, it, they still do have a, some value on the on the stories proper and the stories that are canon because there could be these whispers inside the Star Wars galaxy. So they're not they're not completely erased or anything anything so dramatic as a- oh no exactly as you said it's part of a Legends universe. It's not as if they don't exist anymore and. And I implore people who are fans of them to to read them. It's yeah. just not not necessarily mine or you know, other people's cup of tea, is it? Yeah. So and they're, it doesn't, they doesn't just matter that much. Yeah, and they don't have to have an impact on on the story, but it doesn't mean there isn't value there. So anyway, exactly. Anyways, I, let's let's get back to to Master Peel. Uh, the canon version. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I quite liked him as well. I thought he was kind of, uh, he was kind of entertaining with the, the whole, you know, I've been waiting for you, I've been waiting for you. He definitely seemed like a, a tough guy. Like he wasn't going to crack under that, uh, under that droid's interrogation. Although I, I did cringe when that droid was sticking that needle right up to his like one good eye. I was like, oh god, what is, they're not going to show that, are they? <laughs> they, can't, they can't. Um, it was he was yeah he was a fun character and it was it was a shame to see him go his death though his death was brutal man with those those Anubas just just knocking him over and rolling him around and just uh, it was a, it was a it was a tough way to go I mean you almost wish for the the the, the instant instant kill of a blaster shot or something but he he went down hard and he uh, he and man oh man you know like you said shows the uh, Shows the power of the Citadel. You know, not everybody's going to be able to make it out alive. Well, it was brutal, but as I was saying earlier, I think it, it was very impactful and effective. The yeah. similar way, uh, spoilers, if you haven't seen Rebels, you might want to turn off at this point, but in the Rise of the Old Masters, you know, we see the hologram of Luminara there, and we find out that that's actually her fate. And, and that's actually quite impactful as well, because it's so seemingly cruel and, and quite you know, tyrannical and... And I think that works very well because sometimes you need those uh, 
um, beats, I guess, in these episodes to actually demonstrate the fact that this is a war and these or these are the dark times to actually build sympathy for the characters and and really feel as though they're in endangered really on this planet. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, well, let's talk about Tarkin, uh, the uh, the uh, the future Grand Moff of the Death Star, the current captain uh, serving with Even Peel. I just start off with the initial impressions. I mean, what, what were your initial impressions of Tarkin in this arc? Big, big fan of Tarkin. And I'm not yeah. just saying that because we have interviewed Stephen Stanton on the Clone War Strikes Back, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I genuinely, I thought it was a very, very good character. He's always been very compelling to me, even in episode four. Why did Tarkin have this power over Darth Vader? He, I mean, he was just a human, and, and, and seemingly, and Darth Vader was this grand Sith who was apprenticed to the most powerful being in the galaxy, and yet Tarkin's there saying, you know, let go of him and, and, and telling him what to do in a way, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, how, is, how has he got into this position here? And and I think what's, what's interesting about these episodes and very fascinating is, is they introduce the the seeds of that relationship between Tarkin and Anakin. And you can see how they, they, they seem to be on this this same wavelength, don't they, really, um, with regards to their view on the on the war as a whole, their view on the Jedi Order. And you can really see how those two would have um, fraternized and actually developed this this close bond and, and not, I wouldn't say friendship, but at least respect for each other. And I think that's what you can see in these episodes. I, I, I love the first scene when you see Tarkin there and they, they rescue him and he's straight away there almost ordering a Jedi what to do. He's saying, no, the, the, your strategy, not a fan of that. Why don't we all stick together? I think that's a better plan. And, and they're all, you know, they've already had the plan con- conceived and they're, <laughs> they're rescuing him and he's the one telling them what to do. <laughs> it's, uh, even though that also the Jedi is supposedly superior ranked to him. So I thought all of that combined together initially, it was just, it was just a great, great appearance of Tarkin. And um, yeah, I, I can't really say much more praise about him, I guess. But what were your thoughts, initial impressions of Tarkin? Yeah, I thought he, I thought it was really cool that they brought him into the series. I thought that was a great move. I think he was one of those characters that, you know, he was around in this time period. So it was why not explore and why not see what he was like? And I thought they gave him a, a lot of depth. I thought it was very interesting to see him interacting with Anakin because we know, we, we know that they, uh, they, they they'll they'll spend some time together in the future. Um, and they may not always completely get along, but there seemed to be this like respect between the two of them that they they both sort of understood the way the other one wanted things to be and they could almost almost agree with each other not completely but they almost could and that's that seems very much like the vader tarkin relationship and and i'm really glad they brought him in and i'm glad that they they brought him back again in season five and and made him more uh you know gradually become more and more villainous and, uh, and I thought it was interesting in, in, in this arc to sort of see him always be talking about how he is uh, is in charge with the uh, – or, or not in charge um, – uh, in the good books of the Chancellor. And, and you know to have Anakin sort of say that as well, you kind of get the sense that, that Palpatine is, is building up his little his, – his future leaders of the Empire and he's kind of gathering them together. And these are the people that he is going to entrust to, uh, to lead – uh, lead the galaxy in a few years and uh 
and uh, you know, not to get too spoiler about that about that Tarkin novel, but uh, you know, you find out in that that um, Tarkin had been in touch with Palpatine for a, a, a long time more um, before this. Like uh, Tarkin and Palpatine have a, quite the history, uh, and a longer history than even Anakin and, and, and Palpatine. Um, so. It, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a very interesting relationship there, and I, I think it was really cool the way this this arc, um, kind of, you know, started off this like, uh, you know, resurgence of Tarkin material, you know, the novel, but also just kind of, uh, kind of the discussion around it, that you know, all of a sudden everybody was was talking about Tarkin again. What does he know? Is it possible that he could have survived? And, uh, you know, and and you know, you know. What is his relationship with Vader really like? And and, and I, I thought that was really cool. And that was one of the really great things about the show was to give us, um, you know, new perspective on this character that, you know, well, we thought was was cool and interesting. We hadn't really had much to discuss about this character or much cause to discuss this character since 1977, uh, which, you know, I was born back then, but, you know, uh, for other people um and and i thought that was really cool and i thought i was really glad that they they brought that in um yeah i mean the reintroduction of him just to just to bridge this i guess was was in my opinion i think your opinion as well that it really inspired the new works and i don't know if we really would have got this james luceno talking novel if it wasn't as a result of his appearance in the clone wars and i mean we've touched upon about the, the legacy of the Clone Wars. And I think that's one of the great things about the Clone Wars is by introducing the, or reintroducing, as I've said, these, these OT characters, or if not characters from the prequels, that you're able to expand upon them and explore their backstory, or if they're still around, their future story. And I think all of that's just really, really fascinating, and particularly surrounding Tarkin, because he is one of the, the main proponents of the, of the galactic empire but he's he's up there with the the three you know it's it's Tarkin, Vader and Palpatine and it's just interesting to see his rise to power bearing in mind he's not necessarily a force user from from what I believe at at the moment maybe it does something different but (laughs) um, but it's interesting to see how does he rise to that position and it was also fascinating and, and and very compelling to see the competitiveness I think between Tarkin and and Anakin, there was that subtle competitiveness. As the, you know, I know this. You know, I, 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 I know the chance better than you. <laughs> and, 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 and. Yeah, it was a bit like that, wasn't it? Yeah. Like just showing off a bit and saying that we have we have a closer. I have a closer relationship with Chancellor than you do. But either way, the, the the interconnecting element there is that they both have a very close relationship with the Chancellor, and eventually this will expand to be this this cabinet or council of. Uh, uh, or, or close advisors. Well, not, maybe, maybe not advisors is the right word, but at least close com- confidants with the Chancellor in the future. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, let, let's talk a bit about the, the conversation between Anakin and, and Tarkin. I mean, Anakin definitely thinks, uh, you know, or Tarkin st- says that he thinks that, you know, the Jedi are, are inhibited by their code and they, they can't get... Um, you know they can't win the war because they're not willing to go as far as they need to go. And then we see Anakin really agreeing with him. And then the other thing they agree on is admiring the Citadel. And this was sort of this was really some some heavy foreshadowing for Anakin because obviously we don't we don't trust Tarkin in this this episode. And but you know we kind of trust Anakin, but we're almost given reason to maybe not trust Anakin, or it maybe clouds our opinion of Tarkin. I, I thought that 
those interactions were were really interesting between between Anakin and Tarkin. Yeah, absolutely. And whether you actually can believe uh, what Tarkin's saying, because it does hold a bit of credence to to an extent, doesn't yeah. it? That the Jedi Code are it it does really prevent them because they are these peacekeepers or alleged peacekeepers, as as we have discussed already. Though that uh, we seem to get the opinion that. Uh, they're actually much more milita- militaristic um, than than it seems to be a, a prior to the war. But nevertheless, their, their Jedi code does prevent them from actually doing what sometimes is necessary in in a war situation. Mm-hmm. And it's and it, it is something that they definitely Anakin and Tarkin seem to agree with. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, I, 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 that, that conversation was very compelling in a number of ways. It obviously demonstrated the the closeness to synergy between Anakin and Tarkin, as we've already alluded to with the old Chancellor um, relationship as well. Yeah, and it was just to to, to actually gain a bit of perspective on Tarkin's thinking, and um, it, it, that's why it'd be interesting to explore it later in this novel about why does he think this and why does he want to become this military man? Is has he had something? Uh, uh, has he had, had dealings with the past uh, to do with the Jedi? Has that had an impact on him? Maybe I mean we don't don't really know because he, he didn't seem throughout this. To well, actually, he he says really respect the Jedi. Well, no, he, he says in the he says in the episode he respects them as peacekeepers. So I think in a different time. Tarkin may have uh, have uh, respected the Jedi in a different situation, but in in the war itself, I don't think he. I think he thinks that they should relinquish control, and I think we see that in, in season five. He, he thinks that you know they should just let the, the military people do the the military uh, work, and the Jedi can um, you know go back to doing their their their, their peacekeeping uh, work, um, and and that's. Never- that's kind of reiterated in the in the novel as well, but uh, but sorry, you were saying? Yeah, I was just going to say though, because of the position that Tarkin obviously holds in the Republic, he has this close relationship with the Chancellor. Uh, that's why I, I feel it'd be interesting to to learn about his actual motivations behind it, because ultimately, the same way that the Chancellor has, I mean, Tarkin to an extent is probably portraying a, a little bit of a facade to be honest because mm-hmm. obviously he knows more than he lets on um, yeah. if obviously if he's one of the architects of the of the death star then ultimately that's that, that means that he's going to have to know something about it at this point i mean we see in episode three don't we he's on that yeah. command ship vader and emperor so he he's in on a lot of what's going on i think it, surrounding this war and you can you know can easily keep a facade up of saying that oh, you know I, re- I respect the Jedi blah 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 but I, I I do think that yeah I mean you say that quote there he, maybe he does, as peacekeepers he probably does respect them but certainly in wartime then uh, he, he certainly as you said thinks yeah. that the Jedi should relinquish their control and and he should really be the one who is is, is commanding um, along with the military on the affairs of, of wartime. Which you can understand his argument, so I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with him. But because obviously we see that he becomes uh, one of the one of the nasty villains in Episode Four, we immediately take a dislike to that fact. But I, I, I think that he's a he's a very, very compelling character, and and the relationship between Anakin and Tarkin is certainly one that we can see the the seeds have been sown. Uh, yes. In this in this arc. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, 
one thing I was, was just thinking as you were talking there is um, we know that Palpatine is is really into manipulating Anakin and he's telling him things and Anakin really believes him and and you know Palpatine suggests suggests these things to Anakin and Anakin sort of goes out and sees evidence of them. Maybe uh, maybe this is one of those situations. Maybe. Palpatine is manipulating Tarkin a little bit. He's sort of telling them, you know, the Jedi are good peacekeepers, but they're not good warriors. We shouldn't we shouldn't be trusting them to lead this battle. You know, blah 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 blah. You know, that kind of stuff. And and Tarkin is going out and seeing that. You know, seeing. You know, he obviously he disagrees with the the Jedi's decision, that their tactical decision to split up. Um, he thinks they should have stayed together. And you know, maybe he was right. Maybe he wasn't. I, it's not. The episode doesn't give us a definitive answer on that. Um, you know. Other than they all wind up together again at the end, so maybe he was right. Maybe, yeah, I guess he was right since that's how they were able to get away. But I, it's, it's interesting. You know, Tarkin's an interesting guy, and I'm, I'm glad that we're that they can that they're continuing to uh, <laughs> um, bring in more and more info about this guy, and and and, and we're we're able to discuss discuss him. Uh, but let's move on a little bit. Let's talk about – we haven't really talked about O.C. Sobek yet, the um, maniacal uh, prison warden for the Citadel. And, uh, you know, he, he was he was an interesting character because on the one hand, you know, he never wanted to – he didn't want to be surprised by Count Dooku. He was kind of, you know, he, he, he was definitely afraid of Count Dooku, but he wasn't afraid of getting his hands dirty. I mean we see him out on that step shooting up the place. Uh, you know, of course, Ahsoka winds up killing him. <laughs> but it was a he was definitely a, a he was a good villain i thought he was a good villain what would you think of uh, osi sobak yeah definitely one one of my favorite standalone villains that that we will see in a number of successive arcs <laughs> where we have one villain that dominates an arc and, and usually bites the dust by the end of that arc but he was definitely one of the more compelling ones i have to say and obviously he's voiced by james arnold taylor and uh that was that was a very interesting scene when uh, O.C. Sobek and Obi Wan came and face uh, spoke to, face. to each other face to face. Yeah, that was that was a very uh, interesting scene. I think is the way to put it. Quite quite amusing as well, actually, as we know that fact. It was yeah, it was uh, a, a very good choice of villain, I have to say. And obviously, you can see that he is subservient to Count Dooku, and that's what another common theme and thread throughout the later arcs is the. They usually keep in contact with Dooku, Dooku via hologram and, and Dooku ends up berating them and, and remonstrating about the fact that they're not completing their mission, that they're not being able to accomplish it, making them seem inept. But I wouldn't say Oshi Sobek was an inept leader, um, an inept villain by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, <laughs> we've seen some inept characters before, some inept villains. Um, I've... I, 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 I guess I'm trying to think of one on the top of my head, but I guess some of those the Moisian characters that we've seen earlier yeah. weren't the brightest sparks, <laughs> if I'm being brutally honest. And I feel like this was one of the most conniving and Machiavellian villains that we've actually get to see on the Clone Wars. He was very insightful and aware of the Jedi tactics. For example, when they obviously the two groups were split up and, and everything was going on around him, Dooku wanted to contact him and... Uh, the Jedi prisoners had escaped, and and then he he, he just it all clicked together for him, didn't it? And he, he knew that they were all going to convene at that landing platform, and he successfully halted it, didn't he? he? He successfully derailed their effort to get on that ship because he was aware of it. And I think if you had some of those maybe tactical droids or some of the inept Nemoidians as we see in the past, it may not have ended that way. So I definitely malevolent. Male- ah. 
malevolent, I can't even say the meaning word, malign, I'm just going to use that word instead. <laughs> <laughs> he was a, uh, an very evil character and I think that a lot of people resonated with that fact that it just added to the, the fact that this arc was very you know, very dark and, and, and quite haunting so it was a very very good choice what about yourself what, what did you make of mr oc sobek yeah I, I i agree i mean he was definitely a a great villain uh, or uh, yeah it was a great villain he was he was um very he was creepy he was he, he was but he was active and and, and he was smart i mean he, like you said he was he was aware of the jedi's tactics and he, he came this close to stopping him i mean uh, you know he, he it's it's tough to go up against two Jedi Knights, a Jedi Padawan, and a Jedi Master. Um, and he was able to take out the Master, which is something that, you know, not even Grievous can do uh, most of the time. I mean, I mean, he didn't kill, he didn't kill even Peel himself, but he was able to have his, have his troops kill him, uh, which is, which is quite impressive. That's no, uh, no easy task. And, uh, yeah, he came this close to, came this close to, cl- to stopping them. But, uh, yeah. And that scene you talked about between him and, and Obi Wan was so great. It was such a it was a nice wink to the camera to, to you know acknowledge just the phenomenal performances by uh, by James Arnold Taylor and, and James kind of got a bunch of those. I mean uh, you know he did this one and then he did the uh, the Reiko Hardin arc, which was another one of those kind of like mm-hmm. you know just a, incredible uh, vocal performances and it was it was really cool. It was really it was a great great villain um really great yeah he was one of those he's, he's up there for you know best separatist villain other than you know dooku and, and grievous uh or best original villain um all right um let's let's go back to ahsoka a little bit um um you know at the end she reveals that she did lie about uh going on the mission and she didn't want to, and then she didn't want to uh you know uh, take take on the responsibility of, of having those codes um, given to her. She wanted to go get Anakin or Obi Wan. Um, I, I was curious on, on on what your take on on sort of the that final scene between her and uh, and even Peel was. Yeah, I think that uh, the, the the thought that came to my mind when I saw that scene was the fact that Ahsoka's involvement in the mission was the will of the force Mm -hmm. because ultimately she played a very very significant role in this arc really if she wasn't there you wonder whether they would have actually been successful in completing their mission obviously one of the examples was in that first episode the citadel when they were climbing free free climbing that wall which blindly i i i'm not a fan of heights so for me i would be the first to go on that one. <laughs> i think i might have said uh, yeah i'm gonna stay with a ship with r2 i'm i don't fancy this yeah <laughs> but uh um yeah so you see obviously when they climb up that wall and ahsoka is able to fit into the ventilation shaft because obviously they hadn't considered that in the plan mm-hmm. and then ultimately when even beale dies he tells ahsoka that she's the only one left there and he manages to disclose the information and she manages to get the information back to Coruscant. So it, I mean, that's a very, very interesting, I think, uh, I guess, last scene there between those two characters. I think that there was, there was quite a, a touching, a poignant moment, I think, obviously seeing even Peel die. And he made that point, didn't he? He said, you know, whether you're meant to be a part of this mission or not, you are now the most important part of it. Um, and I think that in itself, demonstrates the fact that Ahsoka does play a large role in in this and uh, obviously we see Tarkin's not too happy that <laughs> Ahsoka's the other person to find this information now 
um, partly because he doesn't really respect her, but I guess also because he wants to know if it for himself, otherwise he has to deal with this rift between the Jedi and the Chancellor. But anyway, that's neither here nor there at the moment. I yeah, it was it was it, a very very poignant moment I think at the end there. And as I said, my my thesis would be that uh, it was a will of the Force. Ahsoka was meant to be on this mission is is really what I could glean and take from that last scene. But what did you make of that? Yeah, I had relationship between Peel and Ahsoka there. Yeah, I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought of that. That it was it was the will of the Force, but I think you're, I think you're right. I think he, he, you know, even Peel does kind of, kind of lay it out there that she's the most important person on the mission. I, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting scene. And, you know, it it was definitely a a big moment for Ahsoka. You know, she had to, you know, trust herself uh, in a way that you know she, she clearly didn't. Um, you know, she wanted to go on this mission. She desperately wanted to go on this mission, but it almost seems like she didn't want any responsibility for it. Like she liked being the Padawan and she liked, you know, just kind of, you know, having to know which way to go and, and being on the lookout and, you know, being able to climb through vents and stuff. And, uh, you know, she didn't really want the responsibility that came with actually going on the mission um, and, or of knowing this information. And so it was a, it was a big moment for her. You know, there's always that sort of that moment where the, you know, the student has sort of gotten used to being the student and not actually having to take control of anything. And then they're forced to, to take control by some, you know, some situation. And, and this was sort of that moment for Soka. So I definitely think this was a, a crucial moment for her development as a character and, and, and an important scene, uh, that there when, uh, when even Peel, uh, gave her those uh, those instructions. So, it, it, yeah, it was a moment of growth for her. And, you know, we, when we think about, you know, arcs that that are important for Ahsoka, we tend to think more about the, the next arc, you know, this, the whole Wookiee hunt, Padawan lost uh, event. But uh, this, is a, this is a pretty big moment for her. Um, she has to know. Uh, she has to, you know, uh, trust herself. Um, well, let's talk about that final scene there between... Uh, Actually, one one other thing before we get to to discussing the Jedi code, um, Plo Koon lies for Ahsoka in that final scene. Again, sort of uh, reiterating the fact that he is no or, no, no ordinary Jedi. Um, you know, he's a bit more of a, a Qui Gon Jinn than a, than a Mace Windu, I would say. But mm. um, why do you think he lied for her? Uh, was it just you know their connection? Uh, or was did he think there was a bigger reason? Did he realize this was such an important thing for Ahsoka to have gone on that he didn't want her to get in trouble for it? Um, because you know, I mean, at, at this point the mission was a success. So there wasn't really a reason for him to to, to lie to Anakin and Obi Wan and say that he did indeed send her on the mission. I think it's a combination of the two there. The the close bond that those two characters have, I think, was evident in that fact. Um, obviously Ahsoka went up to Plo Koon in that first episode and that was one this is almost her guardian when um, Anakin isn't there that's the, the go-to person afterwards but as I alluded to with the with the will of the force and has and as you've touched upon the fact he seems to be more of the Qui-Gon Jinn Jedi I wonder if it is because of that fact that he in his mind thinks it is the will of the force and if that's what it is then yes she should have been on this mission and he kind of just goes with it and says, "It appears I did. Yeah. It appears the Force has 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 done my bidding. Oh, it's not done my bidding. Sorry, uh, <laughs> it's he's it's, it's not control of the whole. You know, Plo Koon isn't the master master of the Force, but yeah, um, yeah it's as though to say that uh, the Force, as we always say, the Force works in mysterious ways. But it seems to be in the case of this mission that 
it was the will of the force for Ahsoka to be there and ultimately succeed in it. And as a result, that's why that's why he doesn't tell Anakin and in, in, uh, Obi Wan in my book. Uh, what's your reading of that scene? Though? Yeah, I, I I think it was a it was a situation where, like you said, he he kind of realized that this was a, a you know a, an important something important had happened. Maybe uh, it wasn't the will of the force, but it was something big for Ahsoka. And you know, I mean, Anakin had been sort of giving Ahsoka a bit of a you know do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. Whereas, you know, Plo Koon kind of, you know, kind of lets her off the hook because, you know, she lied to get on this mission. He lied to to to, to protect her. And, you know, he, he's not really going to reprimand her for it, I don't think, um, unless, unless you know, something happened uh, in the off-screen wars that we didn't see. But it, it, I, I was I was intrigued by it, you know. And, you know, Plo Koon's a smart guy, so he obviously had his reasons Um Partially, perhaps due to their bond, but I think there was something a little bit more there. Um, whether it was he he realized it was the will of the force, or or maybe he just kind of thought this this was a clearly an important moment for Ahsoka, and that shouldn't be tarnished by her, you know, getting assigned to to the library again. <laughs> Anyways, um, let's let's talk about the Jedi code there at the end. Um, you know, Anakin sort of. It says to Obi-Wan, it sort of explains to Obi-Wan what Tarkin's theories about the Jedi are, that they shouldn't be uh, leading the war because the code stops them from going as far as they need to. And Obi-Wan kind of says, you know, uh, well, we have our code and, you know, we should obey the code because if we don't obey the code, we risk losing our honor. And I'm sitting there thinking... That's kind of already happened, Obi-Wan. I mean, you guys have pretty much sacrificed just about everything. You know, you're kind of you're, – you're leading a war effort and then – and you're just you're, – you're stopping just shy um, and occasionally crossing the line. Um, but, you know, you almost wonder if the Jedi have already lost their honor because, you know, the public was so willing to believe, you know, Palpatine's lies. I mean, you know, Palpatine certainly helped the fact with, you know – uh, you know, subtle um, propaganda, seemingly uh, for the Jedi, but secretly um, and subliminal, subliminally against the Jedi. Um, and so I, you almost wonder, because, yeah, I mean, like I said, the public turns against the Jedi without any sort of thought about, you know, without really thinking twice about it in episode three. I mean, the whole Senate is willing to believe that that Palpatine was attacked by the Jedi. And so you wonder if the Jedi have, have already lost their honor or they are perceived to have lost their honor. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that they have both lost their honor and the perception is clear that they've lost their honor from the Republican public. Mm-hmm. It's one of those situations that you yourself as the individual, um, it's, it's difficult to, I guess, take yourself out of the mindset that what you're doing is right, particularly for the Jedi, that they are trying to instill the peace and they don't necessarily have the insight to comprehend the perceptions around them it's yeah. just like, it's just like, all they need really is someone to video them while they're doing all of this and then they can watch this video back and think oh actually that's not really <laughs> quite the yeah. jedi honor or the, the the principles that we had been indoctrinated with when we were when we were young um, and it's only after the war that yoda and obi-wan are able to make sense of it really aren't they because they can look back in hindsight and think Gosh, yes, we 
we fell because you know, partly our, our principles, um, you know, we sacrificed our code. But it's interesting that Obi-Wan's able to highlight that out and then, and yet not realise it upon himself. It's really foreshadowing, as you said, the, the fact that the Jedi will fall. Um, and it's one of the main reasons for it is, the sacri- is through the sacrifice of their code um, and, and the fact that they're unwilling to actually see it. So, yeah, I think it's it's very, very interesting that Obi-Wan raises it, particularly at this point. Um, and he obviously made, foreshadows the, the relationship with, with Anakin and Tarkin, as he says he's not, he's not sure what to make of Anakin's new ally. Um, you know, and using that word ally there, again, just stresses the, the notion, at least in Obi-Wan's book, that he, he perceives Anakin and Tarkin to, to have this, uh, this not close relationship, but at least... Um, a friendship, a fraternization with each other. They they respect each other and they and they agree with each other's principles. Um, so yeah, the, the Obi Wan quote with the sacrificing of the code. What did you make of all of that? Yeah, like I said, I think I think the Jedi have have already lost their code. I think they've they've already gone too far, um, and they've passed the point of of no return, as we know. I mean, perhaps if things had played out differently, they may have been able to regain some of their honor but you know clearly the the public was willing to believe that they wanted to assassinate the chancellor for power um so they were they were you know they were in a a lose-lose situation there um with with assassinating the the chancellor and i think um you know uh, dave filoni said you know if if mace windu had actually killed palpatine he he probably would have gone to jail for it uh you know it it would have been you know the assassination of the jedi council there probably would have been a whole spin on the story that you know mace windu had gone rogue and and all kinds of things like that so you know i I, really the jedi were and and doing that would be breaking the jedi code i I would think you know to deceive the public like that or to you know to put on a deception like that i think yeah i think the jedi were just too far gone they'd already broken their code and and, you know, I, I say that as a whole. I think there are probably individuals within the Jedi Order, like Obi Wan and, and Yoda, who, you know, who hadn't quite crossed that line yet. But I think the Order as a whole um, had. All right. Well, is is there anything else you want to bring up about uh, this episode arc, or shall we uh, jump into quotes? Uh, there's one final point to raise, and that's the the ambiguity surrounding. Echo and what happened yeah. to him? Um, yeah. I mean, that was quite an, an impactful scene, wasn't it? I, what did what, well? First of all, what did you make of that little, little scene there between Echo and Fives when obviously the, the ship got shut down and, and um, you know Echo seemingly was blasted away? Um, so, what did you make of that scene? But also, do you think he's actually dead or is is he still alive? I'd, I'd be interested to hear your take on that. Uh, yeah, I, I, for me. I, the echo scene you know it was uh it, it was it was a sad scene i remember feeling sad when that happened because we had we had just been through the whole uh ordeal of of, of watching them as cadets in, in clone cadets and then uh seeing him fighting alongside uh fives and, and 99 in in arc troopers and so you know i thought it was really cool that they brought those those characters back for this arc and then you know they killed one of them off and and it was it was a sad scene and and you know you know, they didn't give, they didn't have enough time to really, you know, focus on it, but they did give fives that like, you know, one look back at the camera or, or back where they had, go, they had been coming from. And there was almost like a, a regretful wistfulness that he, he wishes he could go back and, and try and find his, his brother there. 
Um, so I thought it was it was played really well. Um, as for the actual death scene itself, I thought, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, the death and the whole thing with the helmet was was really beautiful, and the music was great. Um, um, however, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if Echo was necessarily being the his best self when he ran into that shuttle. I think he he kind of doomed himself. I think that was a a bit of a tactical mistake on his part. I think they should have tried to take down that. That droid was controlling the tur- turret first, and and uh, and, um, and Echo might have survived it. As for if he's alive, well, I, I think we, you know, spoiler alert, I think we know he's alive. I think Dave Filoni put a, a post on StarWars.com with uh, with some concept art that he would have survived. And, and writer Brent Friedman talked about on uh, on Twitter that he he wrote the arc where Echo survived, and, and it was really interesting. And and, and Rex had had come across him. And, in in what would have been a, a really cool arc, and hopefully that is the next arc to get the uh, novel or, or or comic book treatment, um, because uh, would love to see that. Would really really love to see that. Or maybe they'll maybe they'll bring Dee Baker in for a for a story reel or or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what, what what did you think of the uh, Echo Death scene? Yeah, I thought it was a, a very poignant moment, as you said. It was very tragic demise. Well, mm-hmm. what we thought was a demise at the time of Echo, didn't we? Because yeah. You know, it was it, we, we'd grown up with them in in those previous arcs, and it seemed like Echo and Fives they were the last two there, and it, it was sad because it seemed as though that that Domino squad was dwindling fast, wasn't it? I mean, there was only well, for what we knew at the time, only Fives remained, and I mean, yeah, you know what happens to him now, don't we? So <laughs> it's uh, it's it's very very tragic for the clones, to be honest, and. I, I think the the Domino Squad really are a, really a, a microcosm of of the downfall of the clones. It's it's a very uh, a hero's tragedy, really, isn't it? Because we we root for them, we love them, really, and and then they befall such such arduous and, and and quite wretched deaths. To be honest, you do feel for them in that respect. But yeah, as you said, there it seems Echo is is still alive, and hopefully in some novel format that would be. That would be really good to actually examine and, and explore and, and find out about. That's It's a very, very compelling storyline. And unfortunately, it was, as you said also, tactical suicide on on Echo's part to just jump in there. I don't think he was really thinking straight. But it it still was good that he was there to protect his friends, though. I think that was, that was what it seemed. That obviously, he wanted to try and get onto that shuttle, but... He was there trying, trying his best. He, he he was living up to that Ark Trooper title, I guess. That's that's the title he earned in the in the Ark Trooper episode late earlier on in the season. So it, it was good on that part. Although I guess most of the heroes were a bit annoyed that their only way to get off the planet was now gone. Yeah, as <laughs> a result of that of that mishap. So uh, unfortunately, nevertheless, I think yeah, it, it was a it was a sad ending. Um, at, at that particular time and hopefully we see more of him somewhere somewhere down the line who knows maybe rebels i'll tell you what that would be an incompetent story in rebels to see a former clone trooper if if any are still around obviously it'd be very very old but i think that would be a very interesting story arc oh yeah absolutely, absolutely. Can, can you move can you you again? <laughs> sorry all right. Well, well let's uh, let's jump in to uh, favorite quotes for this week. Um, Karen, you want to go first? Uh, what's your favorite quote from this episode arc? 
Hang on. Hello. Uh, my favourite quote. Cut that bit out. Um, yeah. My favourite quote from the Citadel arc is I've got a couple actually. So <laughs> what I'll do is I will choose one from Citadel, one from Counter Attack, and Citadel Rescue, and then I'll put it over to you. So the Citadel one I've got is when uh, the Jedi and the clones are about to get carbon frozen, and Five says. Are we sure this thing is safe? I don't want to end up a wall decoration. Ah. I think that's just a great one, and I, I, I probably nicked that from you as well. Is that is that the quote no. that you said it though? No, I, I chose a different one for the Citadel. I, I I only have ones for the first two episodes. I didn't I didn't uh, pick one for the third one. I, I, I just I got oh, so okay. in, I got so into the third one that I I, I barely took any notes. I, <laughs> I was just really enjoying watching it. But uh, for me, for the episode for the Citadel episode, it was a it was an Ahsoka line. Uh, when she says, uh, yeah, if there's one thing I've learned from you, Master, it's that following direct orders is not always the best idea. I just love that she uh, she called him out on it. That uh, you know he uh, he's always he's always never 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 following orders, always disobeying orders, and she's and yet he expects her to follow follow his orders. And then Obi Wan kind of adds in with the whole, you know, do as I say, not as I do thing. Um, kind of mocking Anakin, kind of on Ahsoka's side in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that was that was a very, very good quote there, actually. I, the, the Citadel had a number of good ones. I was tempted to put the C-3PO one in, uh, the one where he says, don't you go thumbing your gears at me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's got your battle droid. So that was, that was quite funny. Uh, the counterattack I've got is when Anakin is uh, talking with Tarkin, and I, lo- I just love Tarkin's cynicism in this line as they're about to climb up that that pipe. And uh, Anakin's talking to the clone troopers and says, "The slightest electronic pulse could ignite this whole tube." And Tarkin says, "I hope somebody tells the droids that." that was... And it's just it, it embodies, I think, for Tarkin that the, the cynic the cynic in him really. He just was never really. Um, I get, I guess, confident that the Jedi were actually going to succeed in their mission. Yeah, well, that was that was going to be my quote as well. So I, I absolutely, <laughs> I, I love that one as well. I thought it was it was good, it was some good uh, quality humor. Um, and, and since I since I didn't pick a, a quote from uh, from Citadel Rescue, can I pick a, a music cue? Just when, yeah, go ahead. When, when when Anakin and Tarkin shake hands, there's just the hint of the Imperial March. The da da da. Just it was really, it was a really great moment. I I absolutely adored it, and I I really, uh, really enjoyed that moment. And so uh, that that's my favorite music cue from from the Citadel <laughs> trilogy. But speaking of music, I I also you know one of the things that sometimes gets said about this series is that you know Kevin Kiner didn't really use any themes throughout it or you didn't come up with new themes in this episode you get a definite bit of a ahsoka's theme and, and ahsoka's theme is one that we've kind of become familiar with um more recently when it was used you know at the end of season five and then um you know over the credits um during um the wrong jedi and then again in sacrifice the last episode of, of season six where you know that music was used over the credits so we've become more familiar with it and i caught that it was used in in this episode or in these are episodes when um when Ahsoka was climbing into the ventilation shaft, there was a, a definite bit of, of her theme there, and that was really that was a, a nice touch as well. So that's my my other favorite music cue from these episodes. <laughs> we'll have to make a new section now. Yeah, won't music we? cues, favorite music <laughs> cues, I should say. Yeah, just, just absolute great ones. If we're going to say that, well, my favorite music cue would have to be the 
the the one in the Citadel with the carbon freezing when uh, there's that great swelling of uh, music when Obi Wan and Anakin and all the clone troopers go down into the carbon freezing chamber. So I thought that was just uh, it was it, it was very cool to see that and also to see that the the standard Ugnot was there as well to to work that contraption as as it seems to be necessary whenever you have carbon freezing chambers you need to have an Ugnot to work it um, otherwise. You can't. It, it, you need the whole package, basically. Yeah. Uh, the final, the final one I had for the Citadel rescue. The quote that I had. We've already already said this, but I think it's a, it's a serious one. When Anakin just says, "Master, did you sign a Soka to this mission?" and Plo Koon says, "It appears I did." I just like that because yeah. it's Plo Koon standing up for Ahsoka, and we actually get to find out the, the, the resolution as to, as to what actually happened. Because that was a that was an underlying theme throughout the arc, I thought, is, is whether Ahsoka was actually assigned this mission. And there are a couple of times, particularly in Counter-Attack, when obviously Anakin had his doubts when he was saying, well, if you if you knew to blow up the wall, why, you know, Plo Koon would have told you that. So there's it was, it was a couple of little lines like that that made you question whether Ahsoka was actually assigned to it so yeah I, overall that's that's my quotes and uh, have you finished with your music yes views? yes I, I have I have all right well let's jump in to final thoughts and square out of 10 so Kieran what are your final thoughts and square out of 10 on the Citadel trilogy score out of 10 and final thoughts I am going to give this arc a 9 out of 10 and the streak is broken <laughs> the streak has been broken by me unfortunately um, you know what I can't say really anything bad about it I just don't necessarily think it lives up quite to Mortis or the Night Sisters why it doesn't quite get my my 10 out of 10 but it was up there with a uh, an amazing arc, I have to say. It, as I said, it had that episode four feel to it. To be honest, uh, it was it was quite a simple mission, the premise of it. But you, you just, I mean, how much would we be able to talk about it? Even though it was, a, I think it was one of the most action-packed arcs that you probably will, will ever see on the Wars, uh, even in the future episodes or uh, the earlier episodes. I think this is a bit like, say, an Umbara. Um, it was it was on that type of scale, really. That every every other minute there was some sort of action sequence, and I think those who are a big fan of those scenes, they would have absolutely loved this arc. And it, it was so so interesting. But you also had the, the character relationships to Arkin and Anakin, and we get to learn a bit about Even Keel, and obviously the relationship between ah- Ahsoka and Anakin. We see that developing a little bit more, and how they're a- able to overcome the obstacles that were there in the in the Mortis trilogy of Ahsoka's death, obviously. And I I love this one so so much. I, it was it, it has continued the trend from the second half of season three, as I said at the opening, of just great arcs, and uh, we still got another one to come next time, which is is up there as well but citadel arc nine out of ten explosive action-packed sensational arc and yes kudos to you as well kevin kiner score was great as always i love the sound cues as well we didn't actually talk about it too much but you you, you could hear the uh, late motifs i guess of the of the death star particularly in the alarms whenever the when the Jedi and, and the clones discovered they were there um, and also the carbon freezing uh, the carbon chamber sounds it's all very reminiscent of episode 4 and episode 5 so kudos to the sound team David Accord and Matt Wood in that regard and over to you Dominic 
final thoughts and score out of 10. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love this arc as well. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's really, uh, you know, it, it's fun, but it's also dark. And that, that's not kind of what we've been talking about this whole time. I love that um, it was a big moment for Ahsoka. I love that they brought in Tarkin. I love that it opened the door for so much more Tarkin stuff. Like We're, we're both reading that Tarkin novel now. Um, and, and it's it's been such great read so far, and and, um, and in a large part due to the fact that we had these episodes and and the episodes at the end of season five, and they were just uh, it's it's just great. Um, and also, it was interesting to see Anakin and Tarkin together. It was very much the precursor to Anakin and Vader, or, or not Anakin and Vader, Vader and Tarkin, and that was really cool. And then to introduce the introduce this new concept of this Jedi prison. Like I said, I'd love to see more of this, but in an, in an earlier time to see what was really going on in the Citadel uh, long before the, the Clone Wars ever broke uh, broke, or broke out. Yeah. Um, and also, we didn't really talk about it, but R2 and the battle droids was absolutely hilarious. So much fun stuff in there. Um, as well as, uh, it was cool to see the Carbonite freezing chamber. That was a, that was a, a good, um, a, a good good move also great space action and i love the design of lola seyu and the citadel as a whole so i am going to give this episode arc a nine out of ten as well <laughs> if you hadn't broken the streak i would have broken the streak it's it's so great but just after those last two arcs uh nothing can can compare and uh, this this episode this episode arc did its absolute best and boy oh boy was it a lot of fun and, and, and i'm really glad uh I really enjoyed talking about it. Really enjoyed talking about it. All right, so that about wraps it up for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget, you can check out this show uh, every other Tuesday. Uh, that's when we release new episodes. Uh, you sub- subscribe to it on iTunes by subscribing to the Star Wars Underworld uh, podcast feed. That's where you'll get this show and my other show, the Star Wars Underworld podcast, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TCWStrikesBack at DominicJ25 and at CDuggan6. Also, support our guest this week, Stephen Stanton. You can follow him at Stephen underscore Stanton and uh, look him up on Facebook. Uh, and you can, and while you're doing that, also don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Clone Wars Strikes Back, or just search the Clone Wars Strikes Back. Um, if you want to keep a little bit of Clone Wars in your newsfeed, this is how to do it. We always, we're always posting cool pictures and videos and music and, and all kinds of stuff all related to the Clone Wars uh, animated series uh, let's see anything else and Karen what else why don't you let us know what is coming up on Expression FM this week we've got a lot coming up on Expression FM this week as usual I've got the the Time Pop show with my good friend Will Shaw which we do on Thursdays 12pm till 2pm so you eager listeners at 7am in the morning get on up <laughs> Get on up out of bed and listen to the time pop where we go through the the music from a particular year in time. And last week we did 1999. And, uh, I tell you what, there are a lot of what I would label as cheesy tunes in 1999 with the likes of S Club 7, Backstreet Boys, <laughs> and you have just got so and steps did, of course with tragedy. Did you oh, play? Um, did you play Duel of the Fates? 
Yes, I did, because yeah. obviously that was the year of episode one. Uh, we, we looked through pop culture section, and of course Star Wars was there, and uh, Jewel of the Fates was played, and also Jar Jar Binks. I gave my little eulogy for Jar Jar. So that was uh, an amazing ride. And the next year we're going to be doing is, we're going to go even further back, we're going to go 1967. So that was quite a few generations back, but all you Beatles, Rolling Stones, others, I'm sure you'll be there eagerly listening. We've also got the sports shows, as usual, on uh, on the weekend. So we have the Saturday sports show at uh, 11 a.m. till 2 p.m. We've also got the Sunday sporting brunch at 10 a.m. till 11 a.m. So again, very, very early. But you can follow that on Expression Sport. Just search that in your Facebook uh, search bar. And you can also search the Time Pop with uh, me and Will Short there. We've, we've now uh, launched our Facebook page, so you can follow that at your own discretion. And you can also follow Expression on the Twitter handle, which is at Expression FM. And over to you, Dominic. I'm sure you've got your podcast that you want to impart to the listeners. Yes. Well, first, can I make a request um, for, for Time Pop? When you, when, you, when you do 1977 or 78, I want the uh, Star Wars disco remix. Uh, to be included. Um, so that is that is uh, my request. All right, I will put that on the list, Dominic, and I'll, I'll give you a little shout out on air so you can, yeah. you can listen in. Please do. At, uh, at, uh, at, um, hello. Got the feed in time now, 12 p.m. till 2 p.m. Yeah, well, That's bad, I'll, isn't it? When you I'll, show as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll get up for that. I will. Uh, when, when you get to that year, I'll get up in the morning because it'll be, like you said, it'll be seven in the morning here so i will and i will listen hopefully you can do it earlier in the show because i do have to leave <laughs> but <laughs> anyways that's, that's neither oh, here your message to wake you up yeah exactly uh, but that's, that's neither here nor there um yeah like you said uh don't forget to check out the star wars underworld podcast Just subscribe uh, on itunes you also can get that show you get this show it's two podcasts for the price of one subscription on itunes and that price is of course free um and uh um that show's a lot of fun it's myself uh chris eagle uh ben hart talking all things star wars we're focusing in on rebels right now of course new episodes are on each each week so we uh break those down karen was a guest on the last episode where we talked about breaking ranks and that was a lot of fun we're also talking all things the force awakens and uh, standalone films novels all all that fun stuff uh, so be sure to check that out that's thursdays at 9 p.m recorded live on channel 1138.com or uh fridays or anytime after that on itunes uh, and between shows don't forget to hit up starwarsunderworld.com for all the latest breaking star wars news including the force awakens uh rebels Clone Wars news. We didn't mention it on, on this show, but the soundtrack is is coming out. It's available for pre-order now. On the day that this show goes out, uh, it should be available to the masses. Go pre, go go order it on iTunes. It's only like ten bucks. You got just a whole bunch of tr- uh, tracks from the entire uh, run of the series. Um, um, do not hesitate. Show no mercy. Download that. Show the uh, the powers that be at Lucasfilm that we want more of this stuff. Uh, and and uh, get the soundtrack. And also on StarWarsUnderworld.com this week, you'll be able to find my review of the Season 6 The Lost Missions Blu-ray. It's really great, guys. It's really, really good. That documentary on there, Clone Wars to Classified, is amazing. You have to watch it. It is just a wonderful recap of everything that went on during the series. Um, and also on StarWarsUnderworld.com this week, uh, you can win a copy of the aforementioned blu-ray as well as a couple of other grand prizes 
um, um, all kinds of cool Star Wars, uh, Star Wars stuff, as well as uh, there's also a Phineas and Ferb Star Wars draw going on this week on StarWarsUnderworld.com. So be sure to hit up that during the week. So thank you everybody for listening. For everybody here at the Clone Wars Strikes Back, uh, thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you.